Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. This hour is brought to you by Team Hochberg. Visit their website, 56david.com. That's 56david.com. The Bernstein and Holmes Show. The other shoe is dropped and Jerry Reinsdorf has made his pitch. If you don't like the team on the field and you don't like the owner, why would you root for him? Out of history? Cool. Guess what the owner did? He went number two on your history. Blamed you. Blamed blamed the neighborhood. Blamed you and blamed the neighbor and said, look, you got to give me all this money now. Even though you gave me a bunch of money before, you got to give me all this money again because you weren't coming to enough games. You weren't coming to enough games because you were smart enough to understand that the product on the field was sour. You got a guy out here telling you how for 35 years he has not been an economic engine. He's telling you, I don't know how to make this business profitable. To even say things like the stadium would serve as an anchor and yet you're blaming your fans for not coming even right after you won the world series and we didn't even draw after we won the world series then how are you an anchor but give me another one what about the other one i don't care screw those people screw that century of support that they have given this franchise screw the south side let me get my white flight on so we can get this money Bernstein and Holmes, Middays 10 a.m. till 2 on Chicago Sports Radio, 670 The Score. We're broadcasting live from the Hyundai Studios, brought to you by your local Hyundai dealers. Happy Friday, Bernstein and Holmes. We are busy with stuff. James DeVoe to join us at 11, high noon. Kevin Fishbane at noon. Michael O'Brien, 1245. Jason Leisure at 1, leading you up to Cubs and Sox baseball. That White Sox lineup just posted for today's game. Why don't you read it out? No, no, no. Why not? I think it's illegal. No, you can read it out. Let people know what they're going to get today on the score. I I really don't think Our cover starts at 155. Okay, you want you want your White Sox lineup? I do. I want to know who's playing in today's game. Cubs and White Sox, the battle for the Cactus League. Leading off in right field, Kevin Pillar. 
The shortstop batting second, Paul DeYoung. Batting third at first base, Andrew Vaughn. Oh, he's decent. The cleanup hitter at third, Brian Ramos. I don't know who that is. The designated hitter, Tim Elko. I, I don't know who that is either. In center field, Dominic Fletcher. All right, well. The left fielder, Rafael Ortega. Sure, we've seen him. Your catcher, Martin Maldonado. He's going to hit 175 this year. At second base, Nicky Lopez. Also going to hit 175 this year. And the starting pitcher. Do you know he's from Naperville? Jesse Chavez, your Chicago White Sox. All right. Who the Cubs got going? Is that lineup out yet? They might as well just rename themselves the White Sox. I don't have the Cubs lineup. All right. Well, when it gets posted, we can talk about it. (laughs) Wow, that White Sox lineup. It's so... Fast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Go Sox. Go Sox. I don't like our team. Theme song for your 2024 White Sox. I want to talk about it, cuz. Sox a fool. Aggressive, situationally smart, tenacious. Is that what it is? No, we, I forgot we again. put tenacious in there because oh, it's two sound. words. Oh, that's technically right. sound. Technically, so it's fast. Technically sound. Fox a fool. <laughs> no, they've got Tim Anderson now. That's right. They might have the worst defensive left side of an infield that's ever been put out there. And not MLB. great. Have you seen the White Sox left side of their infield? It's got to be better. Yeah, but we, we know Moncada can actually play oh, third. I right. legitimately forgot that Yohan Moncada's on the team. <laughs> that's okay. It's all right. So something did happen in the world of the White Sox yesterday that's actually a, a big deal. What? Chris Kampka left. Yes. Chris Kampka is is fleeing. NBC Sports Chicago to join the marquee network. And you might think, well, who is that? Oh, that's just the Sox math guy. That is a, if you know the way these broadcasts are put together and you know, he's his title of an associate producer, I don't think really reflects the, the significance. And especially for him to give up that history in that truck to go across town to the other truck. That's a big deal. Chris Kampka, I I adore him. He's just a really wonderful guy. And you've seen, like, he's one of those guys where you go, hey, hey, smart guy, what's going on? He's like, oh, well, let me tell you what's going on. And you go, someone should talk with that person on the air so that they could explain baseball to me. So we would put him on on the nighttime show when I was hosting that years ago. And he was always terrific and always like totally gracious with his time. And then you see like what he was doing from a production standpoint over at NBC Sports Chicago, how he was making every broadcast better, making everyone smarter, little nuggets of, of information to pass along to, to Jason Benetti and Steve Stone. And Sox math was his baby, you know, Cubs calculus, maybe. Well. To do that without there being any sort of infringement but yes it's a it's a big deal it's a big deal that he I I think the Cubs fans not that they they have really great smart numbers people on the Cubs broadcast too including their play-by-play guy 
the enhancement of this with Chris Kamka as part of that production staff is going – it's going to be noticeable. Let's put it that way. Like, now that we've alerted you to it, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, the guys were talking about this type of stuff being on the broadcast. It's also the, the timing of the move itself, considering – rampant uncertainty that's surrounding the future of NBC Sports Chicago. Yeah, I, I would say that all of us that work there are probably a little worried about things because, look, there are choices to be made by the teams that that are partnered over there at NBC Sports Chicago and what to do. And it, it's hard to ignore that over the last decade, in full disclosure, I was one of the people that helped start the stadium network when it was 120 sports, they Jerry Reisdorf has an entire network ready to go at the United Center. Like they they have program they do programming stuff with Marquis, strangely enough. Um, and then there was the kind of weird marriage between Stadium and Bally's. And that's been And that's part of Silver Chalice. Yeah. So right? like there there's there's a fully functional network out of the United Center. A lot of really smart people that work over there. And it's it's ready to be built out. That's that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, it's fully functional right now. You know, they've they've acquired a bunch of really talented people. Our, our guy, Russ, left there. He's now the baseball Bigfoot at Yahoo, but he was hosting a show there for a couple of years. As the model changed, and you heard Tom Ricketts talking about it a little bit, when, when he was asked down in Mesa about how all of these things are working together, the landscape is changing. Like it's absolutely changing. So seeing someone that is, in my opinion, so pivotal to what it is that we do at NBC Sports Chicago move is jarring because he's, he's really great. Like every time I'm over there, I was over there yesterday. Like I'm surrounded by really smart people and you want to make sure that everyone's going to be okay. And when you see something like this, like that him leaving was reverberating through the hallways when I was there earlier this week. Cubs fans, you're going to enjoy it. Marquee hired an excellent person and on top of that, like someone who's really good at their job. Speaking of smart people, you're going to hear from one next. I just, I got, I, I, I was so pleased that there was an explainer put out yesterday. It's just a couple of minutes, a few minutes, and it's got cool video attached to it, but the audio works on its own. And it is done by Robert Reich. They say, well, who's that? Well, Robert Reich was uh, Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration. He also has worked for Gerald Ford. He worked for Jimmy Carter. He has been a lecturer at Harvard, and he currently lectures at, I believe, is it is it Stanford? I, Berkeley. I believe he's at Cal Berkeley. He's a brilliant guy who... And I, I, a lot of people don't quite understand some of what we're talking about with the, the larger economic issues of why publicly funded sports stadiums are bad for cities and bad for states and bad. He explains, and it's so lucid 
and smart, and it helps you realize, oh, we really shouldn't do this. So I think you should hear from him to just say, like, because sometimes all of these discussions get really complicated, and you get overwhelmed in talking about bond issuances tax and, and tax abatements and all of this. And it's it's just a very simple way of explaining what's going on here, and at least for me, why it makes it very easy to stand in front of Jerry Reinsdorf and say, no. The answer is no, why it's bad public policy. So you'll hear that when we come back on The Score. You're listening to Bernstein and Holmes, middays 10 to 2, on Sports Radio 670 The Score. Mm. Explain it again with those nuggies. I'd watch that. I would absolutely watch that with Robert Reich using fast food to explain bad stadium public policy to Andy Reid. Explain it again with those nuggies. (laughs) Such a great commercial, man. So great. Um, Before we get into Robert Reich, Dan, I have the Cubs lineup for today's game. Fair enough. Look, we gave the Sox lineup. And I think you should respond in kind with a presentation of the Cubs opening Cactus League lineup. And remember the slogan that Craig Council gave us. What's the slogan? No bunting. The results don't matter. This is from Andy Martinez, who works for Marquee. Ian Happ will lead off and play left field. Christopher Morell will play third base and bat second. Miguel Amaya will catch and bat third. Matt Mervis will play first base today. Made a tweak to his swing. He'll bat fourth. Alex Canario is in right field. Pete Crow Armstrong is in center. Then we got Vasquez at short. Ooh. Someone named Joe Hudson. Nope. That's that. Three two seven hundred. <laughs> no Hudson. Three two seven hundred. Is that yeah. his jersey? Because that, that would be hilarious. That was played for Steve Bouchelle. Hudson three two seven hundred. That's what Nancy Faust would play. She played the 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 notes to that for steve buchel because it was buchel's carpet cleaning right yes so so joe hudson will dh Fine. and matt shaw will play second base All wicks right. is gonna pitch he's gonna start at least okay so well, there i've heard of some of those people <laughs> and some of them are good you've at, heard you've heard of most of yes, those and, people. yes and some are decorated baseball players some of them have gold gloves and all-stars yes. and stuff yes indeed yeah yes indeed uh so this, I, I, I stumbled across this yesterday, and I retweeted it immediately because I just said, oh, that's, it's clean. So, it's clean, and it's easy to understand when one of the smartest economic and political economic minds and, and a, just a wonderful teacher, professor, lecturer, he does this for a living. He tries to explain things and make them clear. So if you are a Chicagoan, if you're an Illinoisan, if you are a White Sox fan, and you're just wondering, okay, I, it's all overwhelming. I get that it's probably bad, but why? Why, why, why are these deals bad? And why do cities keep making them? How does this keep happening? I give you Robert Reich. Billionaires have found one more way to funnel our tax dollars into their bank accounts. Sports stadiums. 
And if we don't play ball, they'll take our favorite teams away. Ever notice how there never seems to be enough money to build public infrastructure like mass transit lines and better schools? And yet, when a multi-billion dollar sports team demands a new stadium, our local governments are happy to oblige. A good example of this billionaire boondoggle is the host of the 2023 Super Bowl, State Farm Stadium. That's where the Arizona Cardinals have played since 2006. It was built after billionaire team owner Michael Bidwill and his family spent years hinting that they would move the cards out of Arizona if the team didn't get a new stadium. Their blitz eventually worked, with Arizona taxpayers and the city of Glendale paying over two-thirds of the $455 million construction tab. And State Farm Stadium is not unique. It's part of a well-established playbook. Here's how stadiums stick the public with the bill. Step number one, billionaire buys a sports team. Just about every NFL franchise owner has a net worth of over a billion dollars, except for the Green Bay Packers, who are publicly owned by half a million cheeseheads. The same goes for many franchise owners in other sports. Their fortunes don't just help them buy teams, but also gives them clout, which they cash in when they want to get a great deal on new digs for their team. Step number two, billionaire pressures local government. Since 1990, franchises in major North American sports leagues have intercepted upwards of $30 billion worth of taxpayer funds from state and local governments to build stadiums. And the funding itself is just the beginning of these sweetheart deals. Sports teams often get big property tax breaks and reimbursements on operating expenses, like utilities and security on game days. Most deals also let the owners keep the revenue from naming rights, luxury box seats, and concessions, like the Atlanta Braves' $150 hamburger. Even worse, these deals often put taxpayers on the hook for stadium maintenance and repairs. We taxpayers are essentially paying for the homes of our favorite sports teams, but we don't really own those homes. We don't get to rent them out, and we still have to buy expensive tickets to visit them. Whenever these billionaire owners try to sell us on a shiny new stadium, they claim it will spur economic growth from which we all benefit. But numerous studies have shown that this is false. As a University of Chicago economist aptly put it, if you want to inject money into the local economy, it would be better to drop it from a helicopter than invest it in a new ballpark. But what makes sports teams special is they're one of the few realms of collective identity we have left. Billionaires prey on the love that millions of fans have for their favorite teams. This brings us to the final step in the playbook, threaten to move the team. Obscenely rich owners threaten to, or actually do, rip teams out of their communities if they don't get the subsidies they demand. Just look at the Seattle Supersonics. Starbucks founder Howard Schultz owned the NBA franchise but failed to secure public funding to build a new stadium. So the coffee magnate sold the team to another wealthy businessman who moved it to Oklahoma. Now that'll leave a bitter taste in your mouth. The most egregious part of how the system currently works is that every dollar we spend building stadiums is a dollar we aren't using for mass transit, hospitals, housing, or schools. We're underfunding public necessities in order to funnel money to billionaires for something they could feasibly afford. 
So instead of spending billions on extravagant stadiums, we should be investing taxpayer money in things that improve the lives of everyone, not just the bottom lines of profitable sports teams and their owners. Because when it comes to stadium deals, the only winners are billionaires. Robert Reich basically saying, don't be a sucker. He makes it very simple and plain. Don't be a sucker. That's it. And he posted that referencing the White Sox. Correct. He said Jerry Reinsdorf is asking for a billion dollars, and he posted that is a specific response to the White Sox ask. And it would be different, a little different, not totally different, if Jerry hadn't gone to the well multiple times already. This is, this is the third time that he's asking for big money. And it's not even for the ballpark that he was gifted and then had the renovation gifted to him. The, the point that Dan and I have been trying to get across is that it's cool to have a new place. And obviously, it would be dope to have something that looked at the skyline of the city. But at what cost? The ends don't justify the means. And... In the case of this, this guy is not a good shepherd for baseball in Chicago. Why should he be giving, given multiple opportunities to prove that with taxpayer money? None of us are against a new ballpark. We're against, at least the two of us, we're against it with public money. Jerry's got money. He could spend it. Just like he and Bill Wirtz built a little place called the United Center without public money. That's right. He can spend it. If, 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 if the things that he has put out there in the Cranes piece are important to him, like the idea of safeguarding the White Sox from the spooky outsiders that want to move the team. Scary outsiders. Then perhaps you shouldn't be seen and let it be known that you were seen talking to the mayor of Nashville. You could spend your own money if you want to protect Chicago and the White Sox. Spend your own money to do that. that that's a gesture of kindness and awareness and civic pride and duty. What you're trying to do is get over. You're trying to get over on the state. You're trying to get over on the city. Also, that you can do what you should have done in the first place. And that's another reason to me why he shouldn't be trusted with this, Dan. He was given the plans to Camden Yards. That's not what he chose. He chose the generic ballpark. And then when his own fans are like, this ballpark's really generic and not as cool as the ballpark that was knocked down, okay, great. I'll. You're right. Let's go fix that. Well, where will we get the money for that? will go right back to the same people that gave us the money to build a generic ballpark. His lack of business sense when it comes to the building of a ballpark should be something that is taken into account by state legislature, the state legislature on whether or not he should be allowed to do this. And the other thing is, I don't know a lot about related. I'd like to know more about them. 
And I'd like to see some reporting on them that isn't just, oh, my God, look at how good this rendering is. And not to be a jerk, but in your rendering that you you, you sent mi- out mi- to people. Did you misspelled the name of the city? You made a massive mistake. You misspelled Chicago nine times. And that's a that's a rendering. And I'm supposed to trust you with, with the land? I'm supposed to trust you with the city's property. You couldn't even get the rendering right. Keep all of that stuff in mind. Keep the politicians accountable. Listen to what Robert Reich said. And if, if this ever does come up for ballot, although I don't think it's going to, vote no on it. Don't give him free money. Like, honestly, his, like, even if we brought it down, if we made it so simple, has he earned your money? Like, think of it that way. Has Jerry Reinsdorf earned your money on top of the money that you spend to go watch White Sox games? I don't think that there is a White Sox fan within the sound of our voices that would say the answer to that question is yes. Let's talk some baseball when we come back. Cubs and White Sox will be playing today, a game you will hear starting at 2 o'clock on Sports Radio 670, The Score. And Ron Coomer was on with the morning guys, and he had some real interesting thoughts about the Morrell third base experiment and more. So we'll discuss next on The Score. Dan Bernstein, Lawrence Holmes, Middays 10 to 2 on 670, The Score. In Odyssey Station. Bellinger leads at second, Swanson away from first. And the one-two, swinging a drive toward right center. Back goes Robert, back near the stands. That ball is gone. A game-winning home run for Chris Morrell. Can you believe it? Listen to this crowd. That man's position is batter's box, but the Cubs are trying to change that. By putting him at third. They're going to give him an opportunity to see if he can earn the job. And that, of course, that there's Matt Chapman is still out there. He's still available. But you have to prepare as if he's not on the team because, you know, he's not on the team. Well, Ron Coomer is in the booth. Ron Coomer was a major league third baseman and an all-star who knows a little something about that position and gave the morning show today on the score, his thoughts about the Morrell third base experiment. The one big positive is now every day he goes to third base and they're working with him at third base. I don't think there were two days in a row last year that they worked with him at third base. It would be third base one day, then it would be center field. Maybe then it would be take ground balls at second. Then he, you wouldn't see him do defensive work, you know, like extra work. And so to me, now that he's there every day, he gets inundated with work at third base every day. And I think I I talked with Counts about this yesterday. And Counts is a really, a really good way of doing this. And it was very similar to an infield instructor that I had years ago. Ron Plaza was an old infield instructor. Scott Frocious and I got drafted in 87. And his first comments to, to us were, you know, as we're learning, here's what we expect out of you at third base. Get outs. You get a two hopper hit to you, you catch it, you throw it to first, you get an out. He would say, I don't care if you're standing on your head. Just get an out and let's move to the next guy. 
That's all he asked for. And Counts made a comment yesterday to me as him and I were just talking. All I want him to do is make the routine play. Nothing more than that. And then let's get him to home plate and let him hit. And I think having a manager that understands that expectation and he's going to make some mistakes is really going to help Christopher. This is the point that I was making. This is what I was trying to tell you, that they've never really given him an opportunity. He's like, oh, you happen to play third? Okay, cool. Well, we'll put you over there. But you also play left and right and sometimes center and second and first base. That he hasn't had a chance to actually learn the position and field ground balls there. So I'm happy to see that this is at least what they're trying. I don't. It's more than likely not going to work, but I would rather them fail with him at third base because he's a more athletic player than what you've had previously at third base. I, I, I was so happy to hear Koo mention Ron Plaza. I was... That was my very first job was after my freshman year of college working with the Madison Muskies, who were the Midwest League Class A affiliate of Oakland. And Coombe had been there the season before I got there, I believe. I, I think it was the season before. The guy he mentioned, Scott Brocious, who later went on to be a three-time World Series champ and I think the 98 World Series MVP Brocious, they they tried him everywhere because that was a guy whose position was batter's box. Brocious could just absolutely rake, and they didn't know where to play. So he was the he was our shortstop in Madison, and he was awful. He, I hit something like forty errors, I want to say, in the in the year that I was there, and he ended up with and and working with I think Ron Plaza was a roving infield instructor within the Oakland organization at the time in 86 I think he was actually on the major league staff with the A's but then he was still in the organization and eventually Brocious became a gold glover at third a major league gold glover for a guy who in in A ball was kicking it all over the place so well, l- there learning are the six- position at the major league level is harder. <laughs> of course it is. But there are, I'm just saying, I know personally that like the guy he mentioned, the guy that Coombs specifically mentioned, is one of those developmental success stories. It's obviously, I mean, doing it where he is now is, is but, probably the hardest possible thing you can do. But I will say, I can't think of a better environment for someone to not worry as much about playing the position than playing next to maybe the smartest shortstop in the game. Like, if you're going to learn right. and you you know that the guy that is behind you has range, can help you with positioning on, from batter to batter, that type of stuff matters. Like, having someone there to help you out is, is, is significant. While we're talking about the Cubs and while we're talking about Coombe, there's another Cub that we talked about yesterday, and, and that's Miguel Amaya. Coombe had some thoughts on him as well. He's a big leader, and, and I mean that in all the good senses of the words. He, he's walking around. He knows he belongs here. He knows he can play here. Uh, he knows he's going to be catching. He's, he's good, and I think it's a great situation the Cubs have right now um, with, with Gomes being such a great leader. You know, Gomes brings so much to the table for this team that they need. So to keep him fresh and have a Maya catch um, and and be able to do some of those things, I think the Cubs catching situation in the big leagues right now is in a very good spot. I'm a big fan of both guys. 
and I think both guys do some different things. I think Gomes will be able to help Amaya with the last few pieces of the puzzle to, to round out his game to make him a better big league player. But I, I love the, the catching scenario the Cubs have right now. I'm happy that the reports that we're getting on Amaya are not just about his bat, that we are seeing development as him as a receiver, which those are the questions. Like the, That's what you want to know. Can he pick up that stuff, whether we're talking about from Gomes or the coaching staff, or he's just naturally good and has been doing a lot of work to get better at it? You were asking that question to our buddy Maddie Lee, who is down there covering the Cubs, and here's what she said about the breakdown of that catching position. I think that'll all just play out over the course of the season. They're looking at it as, all right, we've got two catchers who could both take on a big chunk of the innings back there. And so, you know, if Amaya gets really hot and they want him in the lineup and pitchers have all spoken so highly of kind of his calm presence behind the plate, then like maybe it shifts towards him. Or if he's, you know, slumping and, and yawn, you know, we saw a bunch of big hits from Jan Gomes last year, kind of as he had, you know, year one for him has typically been a little bit of a, slightly more down offensive year as he's bounced around the league. And then you're two, you know, now that he knows the pitching staff and that's really his focus, right? Is the defensive side, the pitching staff. Once that's all settled, then year two, he tends to pick up more. So I think they're really kind of leaving it open and know that both guys are capable of carrying a big load. By the way, we will have our broadcast will start at 155 today of the Cubs White Sox game, the Cactus League opener, the battle for it all today. Winner gets the city. <laughs> if the White Sox win, the, they get a stadium. No, they get the Cubs stadium and then the Cubs have to leave. Oh, the White Sox will tell you that they don't want it, even though that's exactly what they want. So I, I, I was, thanks to this site, the Baseball Cube, I was able to, it, Coomer was there in Madison the year after I was there. Coomer raked there. Well, yeah, he made the major leagues, Dan. Yeah, but not, that's not true for everybody. There are some people who are late bloomers. There are some who make swing changes or positional changes. But in, in the Midwest League at the time, for him to slash 319, 401, 444, because that was a pitcher's league. That was a... And I was right. The the year before, Scott Brocious had a total of 44 errors. You're turning into less every day. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I was right. I was there yeah. for many of those errors. Every day. Every day. When we come back, James Naveau is going to be on the show. We're looking forward to talking with James because here's the thing about Naveau. Like, he's kind of known as, like, a guy that knows hockey and knows baseball. He knows all of that. He also knows news and politics. We're going to ask him about how all of this stuff is going on in Springfield and get his thoughts on what happens next. Next on The Score. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. 
Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. This segment is sponsored by Chicago Golf Show. This is not the appropriate time to talk. We're not going to give out any interim bulletins. At an appropriate time, everybody involved in the process will have something to say. And it'll be set. You leave here feeling better than you did when you came down. Well, my leg is bothering me. That's a brain. Every, my brain is just fine. Just fine. Thanks, guys. Why couldn't Jerry yeah, answer they, that question? They immediately <laughs> hustled him out of there. That was, uh... What was that, <laughs> His people quickly squirreled him away. Kind of felt political, like stuff we've seen over this past year. James DeVoe is the managing digital editor for NBC Chicago. He's on Twitter at James DeVoe, and he is with us now on the Score Hotline. Presented by Circa Resort and Casino, CircaLasVegas.com, Twitch.tv slash Chicago 670. The Score, James, what's happening? You know, just the usual uh, politics and sports kind of meshing and people asking for billions of dollars. You know, pretty standard stuff in the grand scheme of things, I suppose. It's true. So we wanted to get your perspective on it because you're someone that is is big into digging into the details. Mm-hmm. What strikes you about this ask from the White Sox and how you think the city and state might respond to it? I'm glad you mentioned the city and state response to it, because I think that ultimately that's kind of the big variable that's way different this time, right? Like when the White Sox last asked for a stadium, you had Jim Thompson literally pausing the clock in Springfield to make sure that that deal got across the finish line and the state really wanted to make that happen. When you had the Bears asking for public financing for their stadium project, you had a city council that was in lockstep behind Richard Daly basically bulldozed every sort of conceivable roadblock to make that happen. This time around, you have a way different political climate because you have Governor J.B. Pritzker, a Democrat who's been very focused on fiscal responsibility and having a balanced budget. The last five budgets he's proposed have been balanced. You also have a city council that is certainly not in lockstep behind Mayor Brandon Johnson. And so it's going to be a lot harder to get any sort of legislation through there. And you would need both of those components in order to make this project work. And so I think the big thing that really stands out that's different this time from previous instances is the sheer differences in the political environment facing him in both Springfield and in Chicago. 
It's a great point about, you know, not just the, the, there's no Madigan, there's no Daly, there's no Jim Thompson. And it wasn't just literally turning the clock to get themselves an extra 11th hour. It was on that literally strong arming yeah, people. Right. When people think about, they hear the term buttonholing is grabbing somebody by the lapels and shouting in their face. If you've ever met Jim Thompson, he, he was a giant man. That's why they called him Big Jim Thompson. Big Jim. And he was grabbing people. Like, this This was exactly what you would think of sharp elbow back room dealings. It wasn't metaphorical. That happened. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And I think that, that style of politics, you know, we, we love to watch the old grainy movies with all the cigarette smoke kind of floating in the air and guys like, you know, meeting in back hallways and arguing about things like some of that stuff still happens. But like you said, there's not that level of intimidation. And frankly, nobody's really intimidated by Brandon Johnson. He doesn't have kind of the, you know, the caucus behind him that's like, hey, look at all this heft I have with the city council. He has to kind of fight and scramble for a lot of things. And I think J.B. Pritzker has you know, a super majority in both houses of the Illinois uh, General Assembly. But at the same time, that's not generally how he operates. I think, again, I've mentioned just like the fiscal responsibility aspect of all of it. And that's been a very consistent theme of his. And even with uh, things like migrant funding in Chicago, he's been like very cognizant of how to raise funds for that without impact in the general fund. And I mean, we have a rainy day fund in Illinois now, like it's just a completely different thing where Pritzker's not using those types of like iron handed tactics. He's definitely more of the velvet gloves type, but he also has a very specific political agenda that he's trying to achieve. James, how is this in the bears pursuit connected and how is it not connected? Well, I mean, of course, for the White Sox, the issue is is going to be not building, just building a new stadium. You have to do all of the different things with that as well. There's parts of the project that will require rerouting metro lines. You'll have a new CTA stop in all likelihood for this type of project. All of that stuff is going to require City of Chicago funding to the tune of quite possibly $500 million in funding for different TIF districts and things like that. So you're going to have that component of it for the White Sox. You'll also then have the big complex around it to the hotels, the shops, everything else. Not only is that going to require a lot of money to get done, it's also going to require a lot of uh, sign-offs on different things like property tax waivers, funneling sales tax money to the White Sox. This is a big scale project. And so you not only have this issue where their lease is up a lot sooner than the Bears' is, but it's going to be a lot bigger of a project as for the Bears where they're looking right now to build a stadium, if they really want to build it in that South parking lot, their main factors are going to be not only coming up with that funding for the stadium, they also have all of the bonds that they still have to retire on the original soldier field renovation. And there's that group, the friends of the parks, they thwarted George Lucas. They're probably not going to be too jazzed about construction that close to the lake either. And so you get, you're going to have different obstacles I think the scale of the White Sox project is kind of what sets it apart. Whereas with the Bears, it's really the matter of fighting with friends with the, of the parks and getting that additional funding with all of that bond issue still left to be retired. What do you know about related Midwest? Uh, that they've been trying to develop the 78 for a really long time. And they obviously have some very rosy projections on what this is going to do for the area in the South Loop, right? I'm sure you guys have spoken about the glowing, oh, this is going to generate $4 billion in economic impact. And it sounds like a really big, uh, outrageous number 
until you realize how nebulous a concept, you know, economic impact is because you have all of these kind of assumptions baked into it. And I think that the big thing for them and the big thing for everybody to remember is that anything related Midwest says about the economic impact of this stadium not only kind of flies in the face of what we've seen from real world examples in other cities, but it's also all designed to get their project developed. And I think that's something a lot of people are going to have to keep in mind. Who is related Midwest? Like where, what, what's their history? What's their, what, what else have they owned and developed? That's a great question. This is a, like I said, they're a group that's really been like trying to uh, develop real estate in quite a few places. They have a lot of different development projects, especially in New York. They have the Hudson Yards project in New York that they've kind of been in charge of. They've had similar developments in Boston and Los Angeles. I mean, this is a group that has a lot of hands in a lot of different places. And the 78 is a project that they've really kind of been looking to develop a very specific parcel of land in the South Loop. If you've ever driven past it, it's basically, you know, a stretch of nothing right now. Like it's just kind of this blank canvas. They've kind of sold it as an area that could potentially be a neighborhood, like a really neighborhood revitalizing type of project. And they've just been going at it a lot of different ways and haven't really come up with a solution. And then you have this, which is seemingly like this perfect marriage of a team looking for a new home. And they're also looking to build a new neighborhood. And so related Midwest is, you know, this is their gold mine to them. This is exactly what it is they've kind of been hoping for. And so they've had success with other projects. And now this one has kind of bedeviled them just getting that development underway. But this really does seem like kind of the ideal fit for what they ultimately want to do in Chicago. James, as someone who who covers politics, writes about it, speaks about it, I I would love to get your opinion on this. It's felt like this has gone at warp speed. Mm-hmm. Since, since we heard that the White Sox and, and related Midwest are involved, it went from like an idea to, oh, the, wait a minute, like Jerry's going down to Springfield to ask for this money. That, I, as a lifelong Chicagoan, that type of speed on something of this scale scares me. Is there anything that you've seen or heard that might allow me to be less anxious about this and the speed with which this has gone forward? I'm not qualified to alleviate anxiety, Lawrence. So I'm sorry to say. <laughs> but what I what I will say is that I think a big part of the reason it's kind of a it's a threefold thing, right? First of all, it's Jerry Reinsdorf admitting in that Forbes interview that I'm sure a lot or that uh, Crane's Chicago business interview that a lot, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have read. He's 88 years old. He's not getting any younger. He knows that eventually there is going to come a time where there will be a decision on what to do with the future of the Chicago White Sox. You've got the lease expiring when it does in 2028. And so he wants to kind of get the ball rolling on this project. But I think the thing that kind of is getting overlooked maybe a little bit is how many other teams are currently looking for public financing for stadiums. You have the Royals who are trying to institute a new sales tax in Kansas City to get their new ballpark built. You've got the Arizona Diamondbacks who are potentially threatening to leave if they don't get $500 million to renovate Chase Field. You've got the Tampa Bay Rays who are trying to build a $1.3 billion stadium. So you not only have all of these teams kind of angling for public financing while also dangling the threat of potentially moving, you also have Major League Baseball saber-rattling about potentially adding teams and pulling in $2.2 billion in estimated uh, expansion fees. I mean, these are not insignificant amounts of money. And so what I think Jerry Reinsdorf is trying to do is he's recognizing he doesn't want to be in line for these new projects, right? Like he doesn't want to be in a line of teams that are trying to get into Nashville. 
he wants to jump that line and to try to put potential pressure on the legislature and on the city council to get this done. And so when I see the speed with which this project is progressing, I think Jerry Reinsdorf is just recognizing that, hey, there's going to be a lot of other teams that are going to be kind of clamoring for this stuff. I need to make sure that we have a concrete plan in place and that we can jump ahead of some of these teams. Meanwhile, where is the Lincoln Yards project after everything we went through and and Tom Ricketts' involvement with the stadium and thinking there might be a soccer team or a Live Nation venue and then through a, a series of lawsuits and nothing's getting built like what's the object lesson right in front of our eyes in lincoln park i think the lesson is that if you try to use a uh, sports team as kind of a cornerstone for one of these developments you pretty much want to make sure that you've got your ducks in the row before you start breaking ground on anything i think the idea of having a usl soccer team is kind of the foundational linchpin of this was very important. You also, of course, had the COVID pandemic, which had a lot of impacts on a lot of developments. I mean, it's even still having an impact for the White Sox because their hotel bonds are not being retired as quickly because they're not collecting the tourism dollars that they thought they were going to collect because of the COVID pandemic. And so I think the two lessons there, again, this is a reason why you kind of have to strike while the iron's hot and make sure that you've got a really buttoned up plan for anything. But And you also have to kind of guard against some of that kind of, you know, unexpected type of things like a reversal in the economy caused by a pandemic or even just a straight up recession. You brought up the idea of Jerry Reinsdorf jumping the line as far as Nashville goes. Do you see any scenario where a Jerry Reinsdorf owned White Sox could find themselves in Nashville? I think that the hints that he dropped in the Cranes interview was that it wouldn't be him that would be doing it, right? Like, I think that ultimately the action would be to sell the team to another uh, owner, and that owner would then potentially move to a place like Nashville, a city that Jerry Reinsdorf has had conversations with. But Lawrence, I think one thing that we do have to kind of keep in mind specifically about the Nashville threat is that they just issued a bunch of new bonds for a new stadium for the Tennessee Titans, and they're leadership in that city has been kind of anti more bond issue for other things. And so you have to wonder if an owner buys the White Sox, if that ends up happening and they end up saying, oh, we want to target Nashville, is there going to be the appetite for the public money to make that project happen? And I cannot definitively say that, yes, it would. We saw what happened with Las Vegas in the Oakland days. You saw how the Raiders came into Las Vegas. They got a bunch of public subsidies for their stadium. They insist that it's all working out really well for the taxpayers of Las Vegas. And yet when the A's want to build a stadium on the Strip, it's kind of a non-starter, right? Like they're very anti this project and it's running into a lot of roadblocks. I think it, it, it goes without saying that the White Sox are going to need to figure out the stadium situation. I don't think Reinsdorf is necessarily wrong in saying that if they sell the White Sox without a new stadium, that they would be at risk of moving. But I also think that it's very clearly a leverage play. And if you look at the playbook to get public financing for anything, that's basically on page two, right after, hey, ask for the money in the first place. <laughs> We're talking with James Naveau here on the Bernstein and Holmes Show, the managing digital editor for NBC Chicago. I like to keep things simple, and I, I, I like to stay focused on what I, things that I know to be true with all of these moving parts. And every time I have seen any anything that purports to measure the size and scope of sports fandom, mm. it's always amazing to me how few Sox fans there are. Whether it's 
zip code maps or Facebook or any of these sort of blunt tools that are used, I know there's no way to actually get a survey on the size of a fandom that is perfect. But mm-hmm. are there enough White Sox fans are just in general? To justify like to just, I mean, I know they've been around and they have had success and there are some people who will come out. But as far as major league fandoms, are there enough people who care enough? I, I honestly question whether there are. Um, I think that that's something that I have to be very careful of. I am a, uh, I host a Cubs podcast for NBC Sports Chicago. Mm-hmm. I always tread very carefully in the fandom question. But to your point, Dan, I definitely think that part of the allure of this project and what Jerry thinks would happen if they do get it is that it not only would attract White Sox fans, it would also draw more casual sports fans or just casual uh, residents in general looking to kind of spend their discretionary income. And At I think those that's prices? Where... You, you, you can't just wander by and, and get a $5 <laughs> bleacher ticket. That's not... That's that's not how it works. It's not. It, I mean, in, maybe in the old days of the old knothole gang, mm-hmm. but I mean, people have people <laughs> plan for weeks in advance or months in advance to take their families to these games. It, it never it's never stopped other teams from raising ticket prices. I mean, you see what the Cubs did. You see that the Blackhawks and the Bears have raised ticket prices despite not getting into the playoffs. I mean, that never is going to stop an owner. But I think that that also it raises great questions, Dan, about some of these things that we see about economic impact, right? Because it assumes that consumers are going to have these basically magical new dollars to spend rather than having a defined set of funds that they have to spend and deciding to spend it on a White Sox game over going to a bowling alley or going out to a nice dinner or whatever it is. And so I think that there has to be that desire to attract more casual fans. And that's where you kind of get the hotels the shops, the restaurants, all of those things that would be around this South Loop development. And so I think to your original question, it's definitely worthy question of whether or not there are enough White Sox fans to sustain this. But I think ultimately the point is to draw in more casual fans and more tourists. And that's where the neighborhood kind of comes into it because they've seen what the Cubs have done and they want to try to replicate that in the South Loop. What do you believe is real when it comes to the Bears, Arlington Heights in the city? The fact that the Bears are sitting on a piece of property that they now have no idea what to do with. I mean, that's definitely thing number one. And I I know the Bears could potentially parcel it out, but I assure you that property is valued for a football stadium. It is not it's not, you know, valued for business, for warehouses, whatever it would be if the Bears end up having to sell it. I get the sense that the Bears are still trying their best to try to determine whether or not they can move forward with that Arlington Heights project. I mean, they've said they would privately finance the stadium itself. It's all the kind of stuff around it, like the transit to get there, the roads, all of that, that they would want state or village help with. And I think that that's kind of been a a consistent stumbling block. They haven't quite gotten the response that they thought they were going to get when they purchased that parcel of land. But then, like I said, when you go back to the Chicago site, I think the project that Lori Lightfoot had kind of proposed of just putting a roof over the existing soldier field, I got the sense that was kind of a last ditch Hail Mary. That was never something that I thought was, you know, really feasible. And I think that was why it was so quickly kind of discarded. I still think ultimately the most likely end for the Bears is going to be purchasing or building rather a stadium on that site on the South parking lot, wherever they want to position it. 
It's just going to be a matter of the political capital they're going to have to expend. And obviously the cost is going to be a very big part of it, especially with the bonds they still need to retire on Soldier Field. Navel, this was great, man. We really appreciate your time and your breakdown of this. Terrific stuff as always. Continue doing great work and and thanks for coming on the show today. Really appreciate it, gentlemen. Thank you guys so much for having me on. That is James Navo. Want to talk some basketball? Sure, because I saw something last night that you've been talking about when it, as it pertains to this Bulls team. And again, I like to keep things simple, and some shots are worth more than others. Yep, especially when they're going in at 50%. Mm. Explain it again with those nuggies. Well, we'll do that next here on The Score. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. You're listening to Bernstein and Holmes. Middays 10 to 2 on Sports Radio 670 The Score. In Odyssey Station. So Boston's just going to dribble it over the midcourt line and call it a night. They're going to spend the night in Chicago and depart for New York City tomorrow and take on the next Saturday night on a nationally televised game. 129-112 Boston ball game over. Yeah, here's the deal. When anytime they were interested, they just hit threes and blocked shots and, and turned you over. And they would get interested and then, oh, okay, that's, that's enough. Let's just try now and then we're good. That's the team. If everything went to plan and the competitive Bulls win the play-in, they win the play-in and make the playoffs as the eight seed. Good luck with that. That's the, if, if they are become the eight seed, and I know there's like with the seven seed and the eight seed, but if they get in, that, they could face that team. I don't see them making it to seven. You know what I mean? Like, I don't see them being in a position to be the seven seed out of the play-in. They'll be the nine or the ten seed. And they've got a, a nice hefty lead on Atlanta for nine because it's two and a hook because you've beaten them. so. All I know is last night I'm watching them play, and you're right. It seemed like whenever Boston was like, oh, let's uh, take care of business, they did. They went on that barrage of three-point shots, which we'll get back to in a second. I thought the most telling thing last night, in a night where overall Vooch had a good night, him being blocked by a point guard, in the paint is ridiculous. A center. But that when you're a below-the-rim center, that can happen to you. It shouldn't happen when the guy guarding you is 6'4 and you're 6'11. That should not happen. The numbers that jump out at me here, what do you think the total difference in scoring was on three-pointers alone? Ooh, I mean, they hit 50% of their threes. What do you think the actual scoring difference just behind the arc in this game? 60 to 21. 
69 to 30. Not bad. You're right on it. Oh. Oh. Nice. 69 to 30. That's just three-pointers. That's it. And they blocked 11 shots. Three-pointers and rim protection. And even when the Bulls are grinding away in that second quarter and they're grinding away and Kobe hits the three and everybody's excited, all they do is they roll out in the third like, oh, okay, three-pointer, three-pointer. And man, and, and then Al Horford sets, still sets these beautiful drag screens. Really gorgeous basketball that they were playing. In the secondary break, you've got guys looking for Horford where he doesn't even really, some of it's brush blocking where he doesn't even really set the screen. It's not quite a pick, but they find him and they use him and he's kind of in the way and it's all in rhythm. They know exactly who they're looking for and and they're leading the NBA in three-pointers made because that's what they do. And then they come down at the other end and they challenge stuff at the rim. Everything. This is all the stuff that you've been talking about when you look at the Bulls in the macro. And you say, well, what are you? Like, what's your identity? Your identity can be, well, we're the team that plays tough and we're the team that, that that's going to make you earn it. Well, if you're not able to counterbalance a team shooting threes with either making your own threes or playing good three-point defense... You're drawing dead. Yeah, you're out-toughing a team that isn't interested in engaging you in a toughness battle. They don't want to play that game with you. They don't have to. They're totally fine with, you can be as tough as you want. We're going to come down and make these threes. After timeout, we're setting something up to make these threes. Oh, and we have two guys. We have two dudes on the team. We're not searching for who, who a dude is. We got two of them, and the one guy who has the chance to be, like, the face of the NBA, he pretty much was like, bleep your couch, watch this. <laughs> and they had no response, like, no answer for it. And it just lets you know what, what the Bulls are facing, like, what they're looking at when you're trying to determine getting to the top of just the conference. You're dealing with teams that are better put together than you are. If, if you're Arturis, I guess there is some hope in that there's still some volatility in, in, in two and three in the Eastern Conference. And if you could make your way to the seventh seed, you could make an argument for them beating Cleveland. It'd be a bad one, but you could at least make it. The, obviously, Milwaukee is in all sorts of bad shape right now. I've Have you seen the memes about Doc? How everyone is putting Doc, like Doc warned the Avengers about Thanos, and then he goes on and does his little thing where he bust tosses Doctor Strange and everything else. That's the only hope that the Bulls have is can we be good enough to make an argument to beat a team that's not playing well? It's not, it's never the Bulls are good. It's always, can we squint and turn our heads sideways and look at them versus an opponent and come up with a plausible path for them to win a game or a series? Or a game in a series? Start with game before you jump to series. It's just people love the romance of a play through Vooch and look how hard they work and DeMar puts him in the blender and gets him with the eyebrow fake. They work so hard 
for points. Mm-hmm. You don't have to. And these other teams, like this identity is we're, we're a tough out and you, know, no, you always no. know you've competed against. But let's, let's not disparage working hard for points. Working hard for points is fine. But you should work harder for the points that are worth more. Or don't work hard for them and just run down the floor and shoot it. But that's what I mean. Like <laughs> what, what you want is better players who understand that value and more of them. There are too many guys on this team whose games are either not built for competitive basketball in 2024 or they're just not good. There's just I I I feel like I we have and we have to give these types of governors on these conversations. I love Demar I love Every, DeMar DeRozan. Everyone does. Who doesn't love DeMar DeRozan? But his game, especially at this point in his career, has limitations. And he spent a lot of time last night complaining about foul calls and having officials explain to him, you were not fouled. Your shot got blocked. That wasn't a foul. But the point is, what are you doing down there? When the points are out here, but you're over there, and that's where the blocks are. And, yes, he's still top 10 in getting to the line, and that's great. There are times when you really need that. But if you're trying to be a great team, a competitive team. This group is really good. In 2024, you have to be better at either making threes or defending them. I'll take one. I'll take one for right now. I think they're going to re-sign him too. I think they have no choice. They they put themselves in this position. And it's all the stuff that Darnell raised in his mailbag. Is this really just so that people who come to games are entertained? Because look, if you went to last night's game, you were hella entertained by what Boston was doing. And, yes, the Bulls had, like, a spasm of them playing really well at the end of the second quarter. And then the third quarter happened. And Boston was like, that's enough of that. How about we just knock down some of these threes, and then you guys are going to come down and miss twos, and then we're going to go back down and make threes, and you're going to come down and make a two, then we're going to go back down and make a three, then you're going to come down and miss a three, and and then then we're going to come back down and make a three, and then you're down 25 points. And then we're lobbing to Luke Cornette. Right. Luke Cornette is out here looking like Big Shot Bob. Because we know that if you're looking for a comp for Luke Cornette, it's Robert Orr. That's right. That, that, That was given to us, but he was out there. He's coming out of the rafters on you. And it was multiple times. It wasn't just once. It was like yeah, four times. He, like he was dunking on your head. How Luke em- Cornette. Embarrassing. Embarrassing. I like when Ray gets mad because he really does get mad about the Bulls. I do. Believe it or not, Jim Boylan said that he reminds him of Robert Ory. What? <laughs> what? They've had some fun with that, too, because now that's part of it's part, part of lore. Sure it is. Yeah. It's just, you saw it play out. Like, I was just sitting there laughing, like, thinking about you. Because you literally saw it play out. 
Boston makes a three. Bulls miss a two. Boston makes a three. Bulls miss a three. Boston makes a three. Don't, don't, Bulls don't forget, make a two. Don't, don't forget, Bulls work really hard with the shot clock running down so to get to get a fall away two on the rim off the board and in. That game was the game that you're always describing. Yes, yeah. Demar, Dura, three point field goal. Jason Tatum. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> they're running back down. They're all excited. <laughs> <laughs> Nicola, three-point field goal, random dude. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to get the visual of Derek White blocking Vooch out of my mind. Clean, too. It was so clean. It was clean. And it wasn't bad positioning by Vooch. He had the matchup that you want. That's the, the proverbial mouse in the house. You've got him. Back to the rim. You're on the low block. And you turned, and he was like, hi. Hi. What are you doing down here? Blocking your shot. And it's not, you do see that sometimes if a big brings the ball down. And on that, no, this on the was, power dribble. you at the apex, fella. <laughs> I, I know. Because you can get a, you can be credited with a block. If someone is starting his shot, and it gets to a certain point, and you knock it away. It's in between steal and block, and there's a little bit of a judgment call there. That was a block block. Yes. That was a big man block. That's what, like, Clint Capella, like, that, that's that's what that was. But it was from a guy who's 6'4". Well, when you're below the rim big, you're below the rim big. Make some threes then. Oh, wait a minute. Worst in the league. Hey, in his defense, I would be blocked by a 6'4 point guard. Yes, that's a great defense. That, I, I'm not quite sure the logic holds up. It's fine. It does. I would also be blocked by a 6'4 NBA player. And how tall are you? 5'11-ish. That would track. Mm-hmm. When we but return. If, but if you were a whole foot taller, a whole foot taller, would you then be blocked? I'd like to think no. Of course not. High noon is next, and usually I I like to celebrate the triumph of exotic pets over their owners, but this one's a little strange. Okay, I have a story of Chicago citizens coming to save the day. Bernstein and Holmes, middays 10 to 2 on 670 The Score and 670thescore.com in Odyssey Station. I'll be back this way on Monday. Settle this then. Right there, out in the street, in front of the palace alone. Yeah, right. When? High noon? One more high noon for the week. We began by discussing the ongoing story of the White Sox accelerated push to intercept a bunch of public money to build a stadium that they don't need or deserve. And we played about a four-minute explainer by a a brilliant economic mind, Robert Reich, who posted yesterday in response to the White Sox and Jerry Reinsdorf's ask, a very lucid, simple explanation of why public dollars into the pockets of billionaires for sports stadiums is very simply bad public policy. We brought back some of what Ron Coomer had to say this morning about the Christopher Morell experiment and the play of Miguel Amaya. We had a, a long and 
fruitful conversation with James Naveau about the stadium issues facing both the White Sox and the Bears. And then we talked about the Bulls' loss to the Celtics last night. It was a good team against a not-as-good team, and one team plays NBA ball the way you're supposed to, and the other team doesn't. It's Dan, this story is something out of an action movie, and it happened not far from here. This is from the Sun-Times accounting. Sophie Sherry is the writer on this story. Chiquita Martin and Marcella Lockett were driving on Lake Street on Tuesday night in Garfield Park when Martin spotted two feet dangling from the green line tracks above. At first, she couldn't believe her eyes, and they almost drove on. Fortunately, they did stop, and after hopping out of their pickup truck, they heard a woman screaming for help. Quote, We saw her slipping from the wire, Martine told the Sun-Times. So we pulled the truck and told her to jump in the back, and she let go. Close quote. The woman, 35, told Martine she jumped from the train in the 3100 block of West Lake Street because she missed her stop. I said, see, well... She, see, she jumped from the train? Yes, because she couldn't go one stop. Why don't you just go to the next stop and then, and then go back, back to your stop? That's what you should do. The story continues. I said, well, you have to get off at the next stop, Martine told the Sun-Times. Lockett called 911 but saw the woman's hands were slipping, and he worried that the crews wouldn't arrive quickly enough. At first, Lockett told the woman to jump into his arms, but Martine feared that would injure them both. The woman fell 15 to 20 feet into the bed of the truck, Ow. breaking her leg, but she remained responsive until an ambulance arrived, Martine said. The woman on the tracks told police that she'd been on the Green Line train heading into the city and missed her stop. She pulled the manual door release and fell onto the tracks, according to a police report. She's lucky she's not electrocuted. Correct. She was taken to Mount Sinai Hospital, where she was listed in good condition. Firefighters were able to retrieve her cell phone from the tracks, but her bag remained trapped in a bundle of electrical wires. An employee at a nearby business did not witness her fall, but said she takes the green line to and from work and often sees people pulling the manual door release. What? Oh, I see that all the time, but not when you're already, like, past the platform. Right. That that would be... Stupid. Stupid. Yes. I see all the time people like, oh, the train's starting to pull away and they'll pull the manual release and the whole train has a stop and it's a big inconvenience. But, oh, you got off at your stop. Good for you. It's also a way that uh, people get robbed. Yes, it is. And so, all right, I got a quick question. What was the address for this again? You said 3100 West Lake. So it's right down the street? Well, not right down the street. It's about four miles down the street. Okay. You know, so you the stops take, aren't as close together as I was thinking then. But still. It doesn't matter. Still, you don't yeah. get out Ke- of a moving train. Lake, yeah, no, basically. it's still dumb. Don't get me wrong. Kedzie and Lake. But the next stop is, pro- I don't I don't know, but I'm guessing Central Park West or Pulaski. And then you get off. And then you go to the other side and get back on the train. Or you could walk. Or you could get on a bus. Well, the next stop was probably California. It That's doesn't good. matter. <laughs> Half a mile? <laughs> yes. No, it's past California. 3100 yeah, was. We should stop doing that. 
stop pulling the manual door release and just know you get off your phone and know where your stop is. To go back to the story, it was pure luck that Martine spotted the woman. Martine and Lockett were driving around making deliveries for Skipcart, an on-demand de- delivery service when Martine, from the corner of her eye, spotted the legs dangling. She said the traffic light had just changed at Kedzie and they were about to drive through. I said, babe, there's some kids up there playing on this damn train. I think they're stuck. And he said, no, there aren't. No, there ain't. <laughs> so we were sitting there arguing for like three minutes saying, is nobody up? Then I was like, you know what? Just turn right there. In Martine's head, she thought it had been a kid on the tracks because no adult would ever jump onto the tracks. She could not believe that they were able to rescue the woman. Shout out to these two. This is terrific that they had to save someone from their own stupid. But the fact that they did it, Chiquita Martine and Marcella Lockett, y'all are our heroes. Absolute heroes. Authorities in Colorado have confirmed the death of a 34-year-old local resident four days after he was bitten by one of his two pet Gila monsters. All right, that's worse than jumping off the train. The creatures are venomous reptiles native to the southwestern United States. Their bites are not normally fatal to humans. The last human death from a Gila monster bite is believed to have been in 1930. We back, baby. (laughs) That incident was not even a medical journal case, according to Dr. Nick Brandenhoff, a medical toxicologist and reptile expert, as he told CBS News Colorado. So the vast majority of bites cause local swelling and bleeding. Gila monsters are the largest lizards in the country. They can grow to about 22 inches. The creature that bit the man this month was a juvenile that measured about 12 inches long. And said, back that ass up. Say it, man. That's something else had to be going on here. Because there's absolutely no way a juvenile Gila monster could inject enough venom to kill a human being what on are, its own. What are you alleging, Dan? Reaction of some kind. Some sort of anaphylaxis. Something. Other than just the venom itself. Venom! Like, like venom! A, venom! Like venom! People who would die of a bee sting or something like King that. King Gizzard and the Wizard Wizard has a song called Gila Monster. Can you name the other? And I was doing the real, the worst song that Eminem's ever done. Can you name the other venomous lizard? The cousin of the Gila monster. A little different. The in Geico color. gecko. No. Oh. You know geckos aren't venomous. It would be that would be the Mexican beaded lizard. My God. Oh hell yeah, dog. Yeah, not the Mexican. Represent. Not the hell executioner. Yeah. That's the best one. <laughs> yeah, the Mexican beaded lizard is the other one, which some believe is just a Gila monster with a different coloration. That has gotten a different name, but either Don't way, disrespect them like that. I'm just That's right. I'm, I'm, and and this would not be any fun to own. They barely move. They're not, they're Maybe not, that's why you wanted it because it's, it's a pet, but it's easy it's and it doesn't really, move. It doesn't, but it might kill you. So that's probably why you shouldn't have it. I almost that's why like you cats. get a cat. That's exactly. Yeah, a cat might kill you too. That's no, why I just said they're just gonna eat you if you die. No. Like any pet would. No, they said traps. And, you know, and you get toxoplasmosis, and they make you crazy and stupid. Yeah, you don't want that. No, no, no. They set traps. They're waiting for you. You, get, you. you walk into the kitchen, you don't know where 
little Snuggles is, and then all of a sudden, Snuggles jumps off the top of the cabinet. Off the top rope! You didn't say what the name of the Gila Monster pet was. I just... I, I don't... It's just not a not a fun pet. No thanks. You'd be better off with a, a nice little dog who can be happy when you're home. And a Gila Monster just wants to wait until it can bite you and kill you. Yeah. Well... That was high noon. We do it every day around this time. When we come back, we are going to hear the soulful tones of one Kevin Fishbane. We get to talk bears with him. And we get to run the idea of, hey, the bears aren't going to do something like trade Justin Fields and not draft Caleb Williams, are they? We also want to find out what he thought about the unveiling of the coordinators and their initial impressions. The tap dance routine that Savion Glover Walton Waldron did? He's like, hey, no! I kind of get get what Softy Mahler was saying about him and his... Uh, You know, stop. He's not the head coach. He's the offensive coordinator. He's going to be fine. Don't play those sports radio games, Dan. Because you didn't like the way he breathed? I don't. I just don't like his demeanor. He needs, you didn't like the way. This is the same. He's this, weird. This, see, you see what he's setting up, right? This is the same bleep. This is the same thing. You just wait till he rolls out his acronym for the offense. This is the same is thing. It, would it surprise you? Although He's already setting it up. It wouldn't say no. Actually, I I don't think he's going to be an acronym guy. So then you'll like him more. I will. I, acronym is always a negative. So then it's already a positive because he doesn't have one. Not yet. Not yet, unless it's incredibly elaborate and makes fun of the idea of having an acronym. You know what? Go to break. Let's talk to Fishbane. Kevin Fishbane. I got fishy business. Okay, Fishbane. Fishy business? Fishy business. Well, I call him whenever I have him on the show. Fishy business. Bears beat writer for The Athletic. I just try to work hard and tell good stories. I should also note, I know the sports caster of the year for Illinois is no longer covering Illinois team, and I am not leaving to cover the Detroit Lions. All right, well, good. Kevin Fishbane talking Bears. Hey, Kevin. Uh, Kevin Fishbane from The Athletic. I love your name. It's a great name. Yeah, great name. On Chicago Sports Radio, 670 The Score. Let's talk some football. Kevin Fishbane joins us. He is on the Score Hotline, which is presented by Circus Sports Illinois. Download the Circus Sports app today, twitch.tv slash Chicago 670, the score. And we got our first look and listen at the Bears' new coordinators yesterday. What did you think? Dan, you learned a lot, didn't you? No, (laughs) I didn't. (laughs) You know, it's a tough situation because we want to meet them we want to get to know them we want to learn about their philosophies but there's so many decisions that need to be made specifically at quarterback and and you still got some decisions on defense and you got defensive coordinator who's not going to be calling plays so there's going to be a, a natural you know expectation bar for these you know media settings you know they're they're necessary but they could be a little awkward um you know i, I thought I, frankly, I thought one of the more interesting parts was Matt Eberflus, which was learning about how thorough they made this process. That was a hey, we didn't, I, you know, we didn't really feel great about the offensive coaching staff, obviously, because they made a change, and we want to make sure we get this right. 
uh, doing all those interviews in person the way that they did. Uh, you know, I thought that was kind of illuminating. Uh, and and then just hearing from Eric Washington about his experience in Chicago. And I liked that he went ahead and said he's got ambitions to be a play caller one day. I feel like so many guys in that role will will never say that. And I appreciate that he was kind of open and honest about it. But yeah, if you were if you were tuning into that to try to find out Shane Waldron's take on quarterbacks or you know, even Eric Washington's take on on the defense. We got a little bit about Montez Sweat, and that was about it. I, I did think it was interesting with Waldron, as you try to kind of sift through his resume to try to figure out, like, what he might be good at. The only real question where his eyes lit up is when he was talking about Geno Smith. So in, in, in referencing that, what did you think of his answer about working with quarterbacks and adaptability? Yeah, well, I think Gino's a great example because you look at Gino's journey in Seattle uh, and, and how, you know, where where he was when Shane Waldron got there and what he became for that team. Um, and, and yeah, you, you kind of hit it, Lawrence. Adaptability was such a theme of the day. Uh, and Gino Smith's a perfect example of that because he's just this rare quarterback that was able to resurrect his career at this point in his career. And Shane Waldron was there for it and he was coaching him and calling the plays for it. So that experience is really paramount for who Shane Waldron is as a coach and, and what he can learn about himself as a play caller. Um, you know, from what I think what Gino said publicly and also what I've heard, I think Gino Smith is a big fan of Shane Waldron. So that, that, that worked a lot. And the bears obviously believed a lot in, in that. And, you know, so like, I remember asking Matt Eberflus at the end of season uh, news conference, you know, how do you find a coordinator who can work with Caleb Williams or Justin Fields? I didn't use the names, but you got you got to you know be good enough to handle both. And I think every coordinator would say, "Oh yeah, I can handle everything," but it's it's not that simple. And I think this whole adaptability and being able to work with Geno Smith and then work with whoever he's going to work with is is really important to show that he can handle it. And and the fact that he said it too that this was one of the biggest criticisms of Luke Getzey is that he didn't do a good job of tailoring what he does to the talent. And it seemed Waldron wanted to make it very clear that he is totally okay with that. And in fact, that's how he feels the job should be done. Yeah, Lawrence, and you got the sense that in these interviews, this was a main topic that Matt Eberfuss was, you know, asking coordinators, tell me, you know, maybe I'm just spitballing here, but he said, maybe tell me about a time that you adapted, that you had to, throw away what you want to do and, and draw something up because of what you had to do. Um, you know, I, I, it's funny too, cause I was thinking, you know, the, one of the stories I did about Shane Waldron after he got hired was talking to some of the former high school players he coached with his first coordinator job over a decade ago. And he walked into, uh, and again, this is a long time ago, granted, and a much different level of football, but he walked into a team that was a uh, drop back pass team that's what they did and they didn't have a quarterback so he had to like on the fly one week before a season start design a run first quarterback scheme a lot of rpo a lot of just get the quarterback who was the former running back for the team on the on the move and said hey just throw it to the tight end if he's open otherwise run and, and that's just a little thing. I don't, I don't know if it ever came up but i you can gather that all these meetings with both sides of the ball that polls and Ibrafus were emphasizing adaptability and emphasizing, hey, if this happens, if we lose this player, if we lose that player, how are you going to change your scheme to make it work? And it isn't just that year's roster or that week's roster. It's within a given game. And I think that that idea of adaptability has has a micro level, too, where 
it may just be, look, like Mike Tyson would say, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And sometimes your game plan isn't going to work, and you got to start drawing stuff up in the dirt and, and figuring it out. And I got that sense, too, that it's also as games are going on what you got. Yeah, Dan, I mean, how many times over the past few play callers past, I mean, shoot, how many play callers have we all seen in this town where you, you clearly see what the plan is and by halftime the plan's not working, they come out in the third quarter and, oh, it's the same plan, and mm. guess what? It's still not working. So, yeah, that's going to be critical for this troop, especially, too, if they have a rookie quarterback, right? Because when you've got a rookie quarterback who the league is still going to be trying to find out things about, you're still going to be trying to learn what he does best, you're going to have to adjust a lot because you still want to be able to win. You know, like it's, it's part of it's going to be about growing, developing your quarterback, but this is a team that's going to, for their sake, hopefully be built to be a playoff contender. And you can't just sit there and be like, well, we're just trying to get this rookie quarterback better and, and, and let him try this scheme and this scheme. No, you got to win games and you're going to have to be able to adjust on the fly. What did you think about Eberflus overall yesterday? Because I felt like we watched a more confident coach than what we've seen previously. Yeah, Lawrence, I, I I got a I got a similar sense. You know, third year, um, new 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 year, new flus, new look. Um, I think he's more comfortable in this position. I think he's. I'm I'm sure he was thrilled that the setup was. He didn't have to take any questions, and he can do that. You know, next week with us in Indianapolis. Uh, but yeah, I think this is a guy who gets it and also has been empowered by the front office. Uh, and has a big opportunity in front of him. So, yeah, I felt that too. And I was trying to think back to, you know, some of these coaches, you know, unfortunately I haven't covered a ton of coaches who've gotten into year four. Actually, I think only one, that'd be Matt Nagy. Um, But I think back to year three, like I remember Matt Nagy year three for the beginning was like, it was like the summer of Nagy because they'd had that great 2018 season. And then, you know, you talk about Dan, you get hit in the mouth, everything changed in 2019, right? So this is a little bit different because this team's on the upswing. So it's if this thing gets going, and we've always wondered that about him, Matty Rufus. Like if he starts feeling confident, if he feels good about the direction of this team, if they start winning games, can we get you know more inside Matty Rufus? Get to get a better sense of who this guy is and get to know his personality a little bit more and and see what a confident fluce is like. I just don't think there's much there. I really don't. I, I I think this is kind of what you what you see is what you get for better or for worse. I'm now we're just the entire fandom waits, and we're talking about all these uncertainties, and we're we're looking for every tiny drib or drab of information and uh, who's unfollowing whom on social media. What if? anything as we get to the combine and we look at that as here's an artificial marking point deadline or we're asking the same questions when are we going to know something material about anything <laughs> um well we're going to talk to ryan poles on next week and wouldn't it be great for everybody if he started things out and said hey guys here's the direction we're going to quarterback i just pointed out there and any team that's listening here's what we're going to do and, and the you know market is open. Let's go. I don't think that's going to happen on Tuesday. Uh, I think if we recall last year, we didn't get a definitive uh, the number one picks for sale when we had our combine meeting with the general manager. By the end of the combine, we all got home. We turned on our phones and computers on Monday morning, and suddenly the Bears were had the number one yeah, pick was done. for sale. Yeah, and and then by Friday it was moved. 
So I think that this is going to, and that made sense too, Dan, if you think about it, because they did sit down with Bryce Young and CJ Stroud and all those quarterbacks, and they probably wanted to wait through the end of the week and see what other teams thought of those quarterbacks. So maybe it's a similar thing here where they're going to want to talk to some of these quarterbacks. But I think if you've made a decision on Justin Fields, I don't know. I can see the trade talks obviously would would heat up in Indianapolis. I don't think you lose any leverage by just saying like, we've decided we're going to draft a quarterback and we're going to, and, and we want to do what's best for Justin, what's best for the team. And that, that's going to be a big part of our week here in Indianapolis. Again, I don't think it's going to happen. It'd be nice for all of us to just get, it'd be probably nice for Justin too, to get that. But who who knows? I mean, my guess is by the end of the combine week, however it will come out, we'll have a better sense of where this thing's going. How did you read what Justin had to say about how he feels about all of this? Yeah, Lawrence, I was trying to, um, like, I can't even imagine what it's like for him. I mean, like, I'm sitting here. I'm, I don't know, 12 years older than Justin Fields. I'm on my phone constantly. I read everything that people, like, if people are in my mentions or in my comments, I read a lot of it. I see it. And, like, here's Justin Fields, the face of the franchise of the Chicago Bears. And he said it every single time the Bears tweet something, he scrolls down. It's Caleb or Justin, Caleb or Justin. I could, could not even imagine what that's like. And you're not, you can't tell somebody in his generation, just put your phone away. Um, so I think this is hard. I think it's difficult. And that's why I'm hopeful for his, for his sake. Um, I guess, selfishly for ours, that there'll be resolution soon. Um, and I appreciate his honesty about that, that it's been, you know, that, that he just wants to know either, is he staying or is he going? Uh, and I, and I do think that Ryan polls is going to, I think he'll operate in this as respectfully as he can with also knowing he's got to do what's best for the bears. This is just, I mean, guys, this is just such a unique situation. Um, And, and I think that it's, it's probably wearing on fields, probably wearing on Ryan Poles too. And, but he probably needs to get to the combine. I imagine to be able to figure out exactly how this is going to go. Do you think that he feels any pressure? Cause we, we've kind of all talked about it and maybe too flippantly, like they can't pass up the uh, the opportunity on making a pick at number one two years in a row. I I wonder if Ryan Pohl sees it that way, or, or or if he does look at it and say, well, each situation was different, so you can't necessarily connect them. It's a great question, Lawrence. And from getting to know Ryan Poles over the past couple of years, he. I don't think he's phased by that. I don't think he's going to operate like that. I mean, he he generally has been a very like, he, like I remember the 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 scouting report on him coming in was this guy's very serious. He's a very serious guy, and he's he's you know he said it too when we, I think the question was asked last month about um, the the support Justin Fields had. I'm just using that as an example, and he said I can't really allow that to cloud the decision i'm gonna make i can't i'm paraphrasing here but he was like that's great and i'm so happy about it but i need to do what's best for the team so with that kind of mantra in mind i imagine that's not going to i think it's a natural thing for him to think about but i don't think it's going to necessarily um you know drive that decision we can all talk about it as you said and i think you sit there and you'd be like well if you keep justin fields you're passing on bryce young and cj stroud and you're passing now on caleb williams and Jaden daniels uh, and Drake May and JJ McCarthy, like that's a lot of quarterbacks you're passing mm-hmm. on for a guy who hasn't won enough for you. And, and that's going to be the narrative about it. He doesn't seem like a guy who's going to let the narrative rattle him. 
Um, but he does seem like somebody who, this goes back to our conversation about timing, is going to make sure he does everything possible to, you know, reduce all risk. Um, I'll tease, uh, I got a story coming out Sunday where I talked to a few former personnel guys just about how do you figure out this whole idea of the person, right? The, the Finding out who Caleb Williams is as a person. Find out who Jaden Daniels is as a person. Because that's like, the, the tape's a tape and, and it's pretty darn good for those guys. Um, so this is the next step. And everybody I talk to, it's like, it all comes, they, they give me their tips. They give me the questions they ask. They tell me the different people they talk to. And then every one of them said, in the end, it is an inexact science and you just don't know. And it's so challenging. Hmm. And I think for Ryan Poles, he's just going to have to do everything he can so that when it's all said and done, he makes his pick. He can have as little regret as possible in the moment and then just hope it all works out. When do we get a Jalen Johnson tag uh, announcement or the or the use of that to negotiate something that happens out of nowhere? Yeah, Dan, I would guess that the two sides will meet in Indianapolis this next week and maybe see where they're at. And, and if they're still far away, the tag might come at the deadline, um, which I believe is maybe March 5th. And, uh, and then, and then they can get back to the, to the conversation. Table. The interesting thing for Jalen Johnson, which is, well, I, I'm, I'm almost like, Paul, I pulled up our, our uh, top free agents list and cornerbacks. So he, we, we got him eighth among all free agents. Legereus Sneed 13th. Then you go all the way to 67th. For the next cornerback so that that's an interesting situation for jalen johnson and his representation that he's the guy and there aren't a lot of great corners available in free agency i don't think there's like that clear-cut corner for a top 10 in the draft so i i don't know how that's going to impact the price and, and if the bears are going to be able to get there this week um but yeah that's where that's where the tag comes in play where if they can't agree on something an extension uh, before that deadline, that that's probably when we'll see it be used. Fish, you're the best, man. We appreciate you. All right. Take care, guys. That's Kevin Fishmain, a.k.a. Fishy Business. You've been uh, sending us into the group chat a bunch of Kevin Durant-related content lately, and I know that this has been a subject. Yeah, I, is- I I wanted to talk about this because it, it, it's sports, not sports a little bit. Like I, I want to talk about the the concept and I guess the the canard of leadership when it comes to sports how we perceive it how it's talked about and whether we should change the way that it's talked about like are we are we right and wrong in the ways that we look at it It i i think that there i think there's some interesting stuff that kevin durant had to say about it and i wanted to to run it by you and kind of see where we're at with this we'll do that next here on the score You're listening to Bernstein and Holmes, Midday's Midday 10 to 2, on Sports Radio 670 The Score. In Odyssey Station, Odyssey Station, Odyssey Station. I just feel like a lot of people that's on TV that don't ever come to the gym, don't ever come to games. It's hard for them to speak on what I do when they don't, they don't they're not in here. So it's just part of TV, you know, that they needed something to fill the segment up, you know, so they talk about some negative, you know, but. You're not in the gym. I don't respect your opinion. You're not in the gym with me. That's just what it is. That's Kevin Durant deflecting some criticisms of his leadership. Now, I think that's a bit reductive of KD, which is one of 
people's problems, like the way that he sometimes tends to lash out. And then there's like the the lashing out that happened last night that wasn't his. Like a fan called him a bitch on his way out for warmups last night. And he walked over to the fan. And then the fan was, oh, yeah, you know, just messing around. And then the guy's wife or girlfriend kept like holding her hand out, like, ah, oh, well, let's be friends. And KD was like, you guys need to be better. And security was going to kick the people out, and KD told them not to. Yeah, I thought he went out of his way to be nice. He did. And you know the other thing that is kind of a funny, like, like people, a funny thing. I, I saw people calling that like a microcosm of Twitter interactions with athletes because um, the guy, this was all caught on a video. You could look it up on, on Twitter. You could hear the guy say, hey, I, I host a sports podcast. And it's like, dude, really? And that's when Katie initially walked away and just kind of like. Like now you're trying, you're going to try to book this guy? He, right. Like. Or, you called him a bitch, and you're gonna try to, uh huh, or or try to say that you have some sort of knowledge you could drop on him in that moment, please. And then Katie walked back, and then was like, "Hey, told the security, leave just him. leave, just yeah. leave these two idiots here, and let them enjoy the game and think about what it is that they've done." But and there are times when I feel like Katie is is often a little he's too sensitive, and and his reactions are too over the top for. The, the transgressions against him. He actually, in that case, handled himself better in real life than he has online. Online, yeah. Online, he would have just gone after you. But I I really, I love him as a player, and it's hard not to. He's it's an all-time great. He, he's maybe the most pure scorer that we've seen since... Whenever Gervin, yeah, it's so weird that I, that's exactly the name that was in my head. He's so great and he can do so many different things, but he's not all things to all people. Let's go back to All Star. Charles Barkley was talking about KD and the concept of leadership. He's got to be your, your mental leader and your vocal leader to a certain degree. No disrespect to Kevin, Kevin's a follower, he's not a leader. He's proven that on all his stops. Booker's a hell of a player also. I think he's going to have to take the initiative and take this on team to the next level because, man, Kevin's a hell of a player. I ain't never going to say anything bad about him, but I say the same thing with Boston. One of you guys has to step forward. He has to step forward. And for me, for Phoenix to be successful, it has to be Booker. Okay, so obviously Charles has a relationship with Phoenix and the Suns, and he wants them to do well. I think that sometimes the concept of leadership is a little too binary for me. That's also the NBA alpha dog model, too, that Barkley was a product of a time when every team had an obvious superstar leader. And his best friend at the time was noted for being a psychopath, like as far as leadership goes, which is why now people are going to go on tour in Australia and talk about how much of a psychopath he was. When it comes to KD or anyone, I, I think that leadership can be a lot of things. And I think that we have in our heads because of guys like Jordan and Kobe, we have in our head crazy people. Yeah, like what leadership is supposed to look like 
And, and then you have a guy who people respect, like Barkley, saying, yeah, that's exactly the way that it works. He would never say that about Jokic. Jokic isn't out here like, I'll choke a bit. You know, like, he's not out here doing that stuff with his teammates. He just plays. What are you saying about Giannis? Well, I mean, Giannis, I this year's a little different. Giannis over the last couple of years has shown some of that tendency. But he's, or he's shown in he a fe- negative way. Or he feels he has to try to show it, and he's forced into it. Tim Duncan was one of the, one of the greatest players of all time on a dynasty. He was the most important player on a dynasty. Well, how was Tim Duncan out there telling people you got to do throw whipping a ball at somebody's head in practice or something like that? Come on. So, so ran across this. Which which pod was this, Ray? Boardroom cover story. Thanks, studs. the The boardroom podcast, and it was a very relaxing. It looked looked great. Like it was, it was him and the host were just sitting outside, like by a fire, like just kind of talking. And Kevin Durant offered this. When it comes to the thought of him in leadership, I'm not as charismatic as my peers. I don't have a personality that's like fit for TV like my peers. And a lot of those stories of what we talk about don't get spoken about in the media. And that's just really what it is. It's like you got to sell what you're doing as well. And I haven't sold it enough, you know. And I feel like I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't feel like I need to. I don't feel like I want people to call me a leader. But I also don't want people to say I'm not one either. You know what I'm saying? Because eh, they don't see what goes on behind the scenes or what I talk about or my intentions or the relationships that I built with oh, my my teammates and support staff. But when guys like that say that, I just got to chalk it up to them just not being aware of what goes on instead of, like, wanting to, you know, push a narrative for myself, maybe not a narrative, or tell the truth for myself, I, I, you know, or, or expose the truth on how great of a leader I am. I don't feel like it's necessary. I just chalk it up to those guys not being aware of who I am. Yeah. I think it's some really introspective stuff from Kevin Durant. Because he's an introvert. That's It boils down to the fact that when he's talking to the use of the term charismatic, he doesn't live as externally, socially, as others do, which is fine. It's just a different way of processing information, a different way of reading the world around you. And I think you could do worse than look at him as an example of how to go about your, your professional life. Yes. it's. I think a lot about, like, Jose Abreu. And I know that the White Sox aren't a place that you should be looking for leadership because there doesn't seem to be a lot of great one. But I don't know. I feel like a lot of players did themselves a disservice. Dan, there's the video, by the way, of the yokels from last night. Um, a lot of players for the White Sox did themselves a disservice by not following Abreu's example. And... Some people are not built to be the, I'm going to rally the troops. Some people are. Some folks lead by, here's the work that I'm doing. And the subsequent results of that work. You don't have to be told. There, and I'll, I'll give you another example. This is kind of what Kevin Durant's talking about. 
but but I think it speaks to the point. DeMar DeRozan's leadership, while it isn't always like the rah-rah stuff, it is him going with Io down the champagne. It is him inviting P-Will out to L.A. This is how I work. This might work for you. I think that we make leadership too simplistic in sports. And I, and I think that's for a lot of reasons. I think that movies have done us a disservice in that regard when we're talking about the actual people versus what it looks like in a movie when it's scripted and, and it can be cleaner for us to understand. I just, I really felt, I, I felt, what Kevin Durant was saying. And I probably fit into the category that he's talking about. That's the point that I made about last week about Jordan ruining it for a lot of people because people don't realize that he's he's a sociopath. And that people thought that that was normal and right and okay, and that's the archetype. That you have to be a total maniac human shark existing to consume everything around you and humiliate everyone in your path when... That's not normal. Right. And somebody like LeBron or like Durant, who just has a a different kind of personality. I, I think LeBron's got a little bit more of the the archetype leadership thing in him, but though. Does, but not in his game. Not not in the no, way. No, it's, it's he, definitely not in his game. It's not in how he plays. I, I actually like I, I heard Johnny Manziel talking about because you know, Johnny Manziel's going on on these tours and talking about his life and doing blow. And he was saying how when he was at his lowest point, LeBron would come over every weekend and like hang out and try to motivate him and play video games with him. And he said, he, he basically was like, how messed up was I that my idol came over and was trying to help me and I did not take the help. I think people get it backwards on Kobe too. The Mamba mentality is one thing, and obviously, like, the the stories of, yeah, you know, I ran ran my shoulder into Powell's chest in the Olympics just to let everyone know. Right. People love that. They love to hold that up. What they don't talk about until we get to a Kobe ceremony is the type of friendship that Kobe fostered with Powell where Powell is standing in as the de facto dad. To Kobe's kids. It wasn't because he put put a shoulder into his chest. It's because Kobe had invested time in Powell and, sent, and vice versa. Where Uncle Powell is now is a hashtag of this is how you're supposed to be your brother's keeper. But we we tend to just make it very binary. Either you lead like this. Or you're not a good leader. And and there's a sliding scale on this. You know, I like in this arena, it's very different, obviously. I've gravitated more towards people who you might think are less demonstrative on the microphone. And I've been like, oh, I wonder how they do that. Because I kind of know how to do the other thing. 
how do they how do they soft sell a a message that they want to get across? You know, like, like we were talking about, like Dave Bomb, for example, or working with Michael Kim. Like he never rate Michael never raises his voice, and I do it a lot. So, like, what do you take and you draw from that? I just, I really, I appreciate Kevin using this as an opportunity to push back firmly against what Barkley's saying, but also offering a different interpretation of what leadership is and what it can be. But I think your point about him being an introvert is significant because it might not be in you to sell back your accomplishments. And so what do you do when you know that you've done the work behind the scenes, but people won't give you credit for it. And in fact, they penalize you because you didn't sell it back. That's Lawrence Holmes. I'm Dan Bernstein. Special guest going to join us next. Michael O'Brien, the Sun-Times high school sports editor we got a couple of things to discuss. There was the whole back page story about what's going on with Kenwood basketball. And there is a new area football coach whose name you might know. That's next on the score. Dan Bernstein, Lawrence Holmes, middays 10 to 2 on 670 The Score. And 670thescore.com in Odyssey Station. Stuff is going on in Chicago. Let's get the most knowledgeable person on to talk about what's happening in some of these high school sports controversies. One, a big one on a potential state champion basketball team. Michael O'Brien, the Sun-Times high school sports editor who's on Twitter, at Michael S. O'Brien, joins us on the Score Hotline. That is presented by Circa Resort and Casino, CircaLasVegas.com, twitch.tv slash Chicago 670, the score. Hey, Michael, how are you? Good. How are you guys? We are doing really well. Can you catch the, the, the listener of this show up? What's going on with Kenwood basketball? Yeah, it's been a, a interesting couple of days. Um, basically, this started apparently years ago when a, a player transferred into Kenwood and another IHSA school complained. It triggered an investigation. That's an important note. The Illinois High School Association doesn't have some investigative enforcement branch. They aren't out trying to catch cheaters. They wait until a school complains, and then they try to do something about it. Um, In this case, it was a CPS school, Kenwood. So CPS has an independent branch called the Office of the Inspector General, and that office investigates stuff. So This investigation had been going on, and it came to light that several Kenwood players, five players, had residency violations, didn't live in the Kenwood area, Um, and three coaches apparently did things like falsify utility bills and other things to fake the addresses. Um, There's a lot of back and forth now between the Illinois High School Association and CPS about who knew what when and who did what when, But, but it's pretty clear that Everybody knew by the end of January at the IHSA and CPS. No one did anything about it. Uh, Kenwood was allowed to keep playing. They even played in the city championship game in front of the mayor. The mayor was doing the color commentary on the game. His kid goes to Kenwood. And apparently all of CPS and the Illinois High School 
Association knew there were five ineligible kids playing. On Monday, the IHSA decides we can't let them play in the state tournament. So they come in and rule the players ineligible. Kenwood doesn't like this, of course. They appeal. The IHSA actually, sorry, they kicked them out of the whole state tournament. The IHSA, Kenwood appeals to the IHSA board. The board says, fine, you can play, but not with these ineligible players and coaches. Kenwood takes that to court yesterday. A Cook County Circuit Court judge says, no, these kids can't play, um, the, the ineligible kids. So two hours after the court case, the Kenwood team, which now consists of just four players from varsity, plus the sophomores they brought up, plays in a rescheduled state tournament game, wins by like 40 points. And tonight they're going to play in a regional championship game. Wow. The timing of the, the ruling from the IHSA, is it fair to question that? Okay. Um, the IHSA has, I think it's all fair question. Yes. Um, the way that it works is the IHSA has a carve out in their rules and they allow CPS to police itself. They're the only district that's allowed that because it's so big. So the IHSA is saying we waited for CPS to do something because it's their domain and they never did it. And so the reason the IHSA steps up on Monday morning, because that's when their tournament was beginning. And they're like, we can't let them into our thing, no matter what CPS is doing. And both of those organizations are now going back and forth over who knew what, when, and CPS is saying they can't talk about this at all because the investigation isn't final and all this stuff. So it's pretty goofy. But yeah, the timing for everything is is pretty crazy considering that they've known since at least late January. And to be clear, Kenwood is one of the state's best teams, correct? They were the sometimes preseason number one team um, of the kids ineligible, one is a 6'11 kid uh, signed with Arizona State. One is a 6'6 kid signed with DePaul. The other one is maybe the best junior in the entire state. He's a 6'7, 6'8 shooting guard. I mean, yeah, they're loaded. They're so good that they could still win tonight. They could even still win a sectional without these kids. How, how worried are opponents that they're facing? Because th- that would be... I would I figure like as I'm thinking they play Oak Lawn is that right tonight? The, the, yes. Yeah. If I'm Oak Lawn, I'm like, wait a minute, who am I playing against? My scouting's been all backwards because I was worried about one team and now I'm getting another team, and the, the idea that they could retroactively be stripped of any sort of win seems bizarre. Yo, yeah, it, it's. It's all bizarre, and Elkhorn has to go to Kenwood, which I'm guessing is going to be quite the hornet's nest. It's already a little loud gym, but now with them feeling the world is against them, um, it's and yeah, the, the whole thing it's completely wild. Um, now it is, it's been known for a long time that most a majority of the public league stars were living in the suburbs. This is not a new thing. It's new that someone actually did something about it. And, so, it, and it's not even necessarily just basketball either in the, some of these cases. Not not at all. No, it, the, the same goes on in football for sure. I wouldn't know much about the other sports. H- however, CPS football stars aren't the state's biggest stars. Correct. CPS basketball stars are. So it's a much different um, scenario. And one basketball player, as you know, can change the sure. world. 
one football player can't. So it, the impact seems much greater in basketball. Yeah, there's grumbling about baseball, too, and I know nobody cares yeah. about that. But that's uh, you hear coaches like, oh, yeah, yeah, well, Kenwood's got guys that aren't, you know. So that's, it's, it's been going on forever. Yeah, it's definitely something. I think a lot of people will be happy about this and wonder if it'll, you know, the crackdowns will continue. But CPS's attitude and actions toward it have been interesting um, because really they haven't done anything. And we're waiting to, they just keep waiting on this report that may have been, this investigation that may have been going on for two years until I guess these kids were going to graduate high school and then tell us all about it. I think that's the, the biggest concern. Well, then I saw the name Mike Irvin there. I'm like, well, okay, well, that's got to be an Irvin. Right, because it's that you talk about the the royal a name. family of, of Southside sure. coaches. You've got you know, McLaughlin Irvin and Byron Irvin and Lance Irvin and now Mike. So with connected to the Mac Irvin Fire AAU squad, you just wonder where what what the reach is of their empire. Yeah, Nick Irvin, who was the coach at Morgan Park, he was Iowa DeSumo's coach. He is now at Arizona State. He's an assistant there. Um, Cindy Irvin, uh, the sister um, of the bunch, is actually an administrator at CPS Sports um, as well and has been for a long time. So it's an extremely well-connected, powerful Chicago basketball family. It was funny last night. Um, you know, Mike Irvin was not there, but there were Irvins on both baselines. Sure. <laughs> Byron was at one baseline and Lance Irvin was on the other. Um, still, you know, uh, fully powerful in the gyms. It'll be interesting to see the, the scene tonight. Well, Michael, we really appreciate you jumping on with us and, and giving some clarity to it. This is fascinating. I, I might see you tonight because I don't live very far, so I, I might walk over because this seems like it's going to be a thing. Yeah, it won't be dull. Oakland has a very exciting junior, too, so it should be a fun game. And what do you know about Robbie Gold being the head coach of Rolling Meadows football now? That I, I didn't see that coming. I did not either. <laughs> About 7.30 this morning, I got a tip, and I'm like, are you kidding me? And I, I, so I, I called around, and, yeah, it, it's happening. You know, it's, it's very exciting for sure. And we've had – there's been a lot of success with former NFL players yes. com- coming back locally, even in basketball. Ty Streets is a great coach at, at Thornton. Um, it hasn't really been the case so much with NBA players coming back, but NFL guys have done a really nice job. Jason McKee at Carmel, you know, even Jordan Lynch at um, – um, Mount Carmel. So yeah, it's been a, a very our guy Matt yeah, Bowen. Come on, can you not mention Matt Bowen? <laughs> That's right. Just an assistant. Just an assistant. That's true. That's <laughs> true. He's not the head guy, but he's doing he's doing big things. Uh, Michael, you're awesome, man. We appreciate your time. Yeah, good to be here. Always a wild time in Chicago high school sports. <laughs> yes, it is. That is Michael O'Brien. Sometimes high school sports. That's editor. nuts. Like, yeah, that's, like, that's, that's wild. You go over there tonight, like. Oh, well, we pulled up a bunch of dudes from the sophomore team to just field a roster. And we're playing in a sectional championship. Jason Leisure is going to join us next. And I'd like to say we know what we're going to talk about, but I'd be lying because we rarely do when he comes on. That's the beauty of him. This segment is sponsored by Chicago Golf Show. Let's go now. You fired the first shot. Let's go, man. Jason Leisure. I'm here in the studio at the score. This is a very, very special honor for you. There's reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times. H-I-T-S, they all stand for try hard. So for the coaches, it's now H is for, hey, don't do that. I 
is for I wouldn't do that if I were you. T is for that's a bad thing to do. And S is for stop, you're fired. I don't know if I really look at it that way, Jay. Co-host of the Sports Adjacent Podcast. I was driving to my dad's house before recording this. I was like, man, I'm really in the mood for a beer. Just one. And then I remembered, like, all the beer at my dad's house is gross. Jason Leisure with Bernstein and Holmes on the score. The Bears are always a hot topic because the Bears are the center of all things NFL. Whatever Ryan Poles decides to do is going to affect business all over the league. That's why we like talking to people who cover the Bears, and Jason Leisure is certainly one of the prominent ones, the Bears writer for the Sun-Times, who is with us on the Circa Resort and Casino Hotline, CircaLasVegas.com, Twitch.tv, slash Chicago 670, The Score. What's up, Jay? Not much, Dan. How are you guys? What's going on, Lawrence? We are well, man. We are, we're doing all right. The, the snow hasn't come yet. It's supposed to, but you didn't know yeah, that, Dan? What, what snow? There's going to be no, snow. It's, it's so weird. Like, the spring, winter here is the weirdest season anywhere Make it in the country. I'm not making it up. It's going to get cold, and then there's going to be snow. I'm checking. Are you going to and like short, put, a, put a book oh, on your head? Yeah, or? It's good. No, tonight. Yeah, it's supposed to be. It's good. The temperature's going to get down oh. into the 20s, and there's supposed to be snow, and it's going to yeah, be cold tomorrow, and then Sunday it's going to be 60 again. Oh, there is this supposed to be snow. Yes. Yet another example of I tell Dan stuff that's true, and he needs to confirm it. This time he didn't even ask a white person. Just he just went to the internet. No, no the, the app was whitepersonweather.com. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, Mr. Leisure. Sure. What was, what was your um, review of meeting the new coordinators? Oh, there is none. There was nothing. It was just, let's try to get up here and say nothing. I mean, I don't know why the Bears needed to wait a month to have a press conference for these guys if they were just going to say nothing. We could have done this day one. It did seem weird, and it also seemed like it's a it's a rough, like when we found out that Shane Waldron was having a press conference, I was sitting there going, that's a rough spot to put him in. Because it is. we know all the questions that all of us have about Shane Waldron, and he can't answer any of them. Yeah. We went through this with Matt Eberflus, too, when he first got hired. That was another funny part, by the way. Matt Eberflus is going to talk for the coordinators. He's going to introduce them, but he will not take any questions on why he hired these people. Yeah. Well, the, the questions well, we, that I had were... Oh, had to, here we go. No, they just had to do with, are you vetting your assistants to make sure that you don't have to fire them for aberrant yeah. behavior? No, that, that's right? good, Dan. Like, I know I know you have a whole list of, like, the new um, job interview screening questions yes. for the Bears. And <laughs> I, I probably ha- half of them probably cannot be said on the airwaves. Yes, that that would be. How often do you remove your pants during a typical work day while sitting at your desk? Well, you can say that on the airways, but you question. probably shouldn't say that in an interview process. Right. Well, you can't. Yes. Yeah. I would, I would have my legal team make sure they've vetted all of my questions before I try to vet my future employee. They hate you too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking. I was thinking. I would have liked to have heard Matt Eberflus take questions on why he chose. 
uh, Eric Washington and Shane Waldron from a strategic standpoint, but these kinds of questions would have been even better. Imagine Matt asking Matt Eberflus at the podium while these two guys are sitting there. You're like, hey, hey, Matt, so how do you know these guys aren't going to do any kind of funny business? Are you sure these guys aren't perverts? I mean, look at them, Matt. Come on. <laughs> do, you, do I mean, on a serious note, do you think that what happened maybe changed their approach in in how they were going to go about choosing these guys? I think it, it what happened with them, you know, with Alan Williams and now I'm drawing a blank on uh, David Walker. David Waters. Um, what happened with them last year, like that's something no team wants. Hmm? We we still got you. You were you were cooking. Go ahead. Oh, I didn't hear what he said. Keep cooking. Oh, uh, what what happened to them is something that no team wants to ever have happen. And teams are doing background checks and are trying to do whatever they can legally uh, as far as screening these candidates. I I think all that really does for the Bears in a practical sense, having that happen last year, is it just puts them on even higher alert for that. But I don't really know how much more you can do because they would have said we asked, they have said, actually, we asked all the questions that we could ask to try to find that out from the guys that they ended up having to, that that had to leave. I think really the only thing you could even do is to just, when you're interviewing guys, point out what happened last year and how, you know, everybody in this building can't afford to have one of those happen again. It seems like, and I've made this point before, but it seemed really evident after watching yesterday's press conference that Matt Eberflus feels like he found himself as a head coach as a play caller, which is a really interesting thing to to have happen, where that amount of control and maybe him getting to know the players a little bit better, and he's not letting that go. Do you think that that's a good idea? Big picture, no. I have a lot of concerns about that, and I think that if Matt Aberflus is going to have a long career coaching the Bears, it's going to be with somebody else eventually calling defensive plays. I get the logic to it in the short term where that went really well. I think we would all agree. Yes. We, we could sit here and, and list a bunch of objections to Matt Aberflus's handling of his job last year and the year before, but mostly last year. But we would all agree, I think even his harshest critics would say, that guy is a pretty good play caller defensively. My problem with this as a long-term strategy is he sold us on the idea that he wasn't going to do that. He sold us on his whole vision was to be the CEO-style coach. This wasn't like, oh, I wasn't planning to do this, but now I need to. This is a, this is a complete shift in his philosophy about the job and what he was pitching us when he took the job, what he was pitching to the Bears in those interviews and to us, the public, the media and the public in January of 2022 was, I am going to, I am not going to be one of these coaches like the one you just had that is so focused in on his side of the ball that he doesn't have any idea what's going on on the other side of the ball. I am going to be the John Harbaugh type, like overarching managing CEO style coach. And you could look at last year and say that, hey, even though he was doing a very good job calling the defense and you saw a really good Bears defense the second half of the season, you'd sit there and look at the offense and say, boy, that needs someone to intervene. Somebody needs to step in here 
this offense and kind of straighten things out. And Matt Eberflus needs to understand, and he has said this before that he understands this, but um, he, he really needs to get this because it's going to be on the line again this year. A defensive-minded coach can get head coach can get fired for the offense being bad. Yes, that's why coach, I'm. That's I'm, you're responsible for all of it. Yes, and that's why I'm scrutinizing the Waldron hiring as if it's more than just oh he's just the offensive coordinator. No, he's the offensive coordinator for a defensive-minded head coach who is calling plays on game day. So, mm-hmm. like, he, his, he is such an outsized standing and responsibility. It's a massive hire. And you end up with a situation where you kind of have co-head coaches. You kind of have head coach of the defense, head coach of the offense, which is the way things ran under Matt Nagy. Now, the Bears do seem to be going with this possibly an overcorrection where – they're getting so many more voices involved. If you look at kind of the chain of commands now on the offensive side, where you're going to have an offensive coordinator who, in theory, would answer to Matt Eberflus, that Matt Eberflus would be the final authority on the offense and is going to be just as much plugged into the offense as he is the defense, which just doesn't seem possible to me. It doesn't seem like there's enough defense. hours in the day for it. Exactly, and I raised this point with him multiple times last season, and he always said, yeah, I just you know work harder. I just find the time. And like, mm, that's not really how time works. Uh, <laughs> you have, but you have a coordinator with Shane Waldron, so he's the offensive coordinator, and then below him you have a pass game coordinator in Thomas Brown and a run game coordinator in Chris Morgan, who's also the offensive line coach. And I believe they have a few, couple more assistant position coach um, roles on the staff this year. So they are going with more voices in the room as far as constructing a game plan. But that, you know, that doesn't always, that's not always positive. Sometimes that's too many voices. And we, I think we saw that with Mitch toward the end where you just have way too many people in his ear. How big of a deal is the Jennifer King hiring? Oh, it's huge. Anytime you have something like this, anytime you have a first of any kind, I believe she is not only the first woman to coach for the Bears, but I think she's the first black woman ever to coach in the NFL. Do I have that right? I Um, think that's right. Anytime you have a first of something like that, it's enormous because uh, on two fronts to me, it shows that the organization is forward thinking and open-minded. And I think you always should be. And that the, what you want is the best talent in the room, not just the best talent that looks like what you're used to or the best talent that has, that looks like what has historically filled these chairs, but it also just opens the door for so many women behind her to get into this line of work and to get really important coaching staff jobs. Now, like she's the assistant running backs coach. So it's a, it's a quite a climb from there. It'd be quite a climb from there for anybody to be the assistant running backs coach to get from there to offensive coordinator or head coach, but at least it isn't quality control or intern or something like that. It is a, it is a really big step. I I thought of this the other day, like this is more of a football type thing. Um, when Matthew Slater retired, I thought that guy would never have a chance at the Hall of Fame if not for Devin Hester having just gotten in. And now that Devin Hester is in, 
this guy will get a, a better, um, fairer consideration than he otherwise would have. And I think it's kind of the same case in a situation like this, even though this is more important, like in real life talk, um, that Jennifer King getting this job really helps pave the way for others, uh, other women to get jobs like this. They will get more consideration and fairer consideration because of her. Do you know if, if that's a, a priority, where that priority may come from? Is that polls or is that George? I mean, it's all good. I just I want to know who to credit for the the desire to be a, a team that does something pioneering. I don't know exactly. I mean, they've all talked about it. Uh, this is another thing where, you know, you could list off a bunch of criticisms of George McCaskey, but he has been pretty um, – Pretty good on this front. I mean, he has a black team president right now. He has a black GM. They had the most recent quarterback they drafted was a black quarterback. I mean, the Bears have uh, black, other black executives in their offices. I mean, this is they have done well in that regard. I mean, they even have a, a DEI officer now, so that's really good. Yeah. I'm happy for her and I'm happy for the bears. I, I hope it works out for everyone like that. Yeah. I, I'm excited to meet her and talk to her and kind of see what the experience has been like to this point for her. And um, hopefully this doesn't feel so much like an experience. Hopefully now it's kind of, she's just another. Yeah. Just because idiot. she, she's now in like, it, she's just got a coach's life now because she's been working for Ron Rivera and right. like, like, <laughs> yeah. oh, well, I, I don't sleep, you know, right. yeah. I barely have time for a meal. I might be good at golf, yeah. but I can't let you know I'm good at golf. Because that would be mean a, I'm not crushing tape. I'm not working hard enough. All of that stuff. Or we could ask her, you know, did she hear about all, everything that happened last year? And she can be like, well, I heard a little bit about some of it, but not all of it about most of it. <laughs> what I did hear, I didn't hear any of it. Right. Have a wonderful weekend, I haven't heard sir. any of that. I didn't hear all of it. I heard a lot about most of it, but what I did hear, I did not hear any of that. Not any of it. Bye, Mr. That's Leisure. That's just amazing. See you guys. <laughs> That's Jason Leisure. And your man's hired him. Who, Emery? Harbaugh. Oh. <laughs> your man's. He'd have brought him back. Cool. That would have been awesome. It would not Don't, have been Yeah, awesome. it would have. Don't pretend it wouldn't have been. That would have been great. And grow the man and get the toolbox of concepts, and he's bringing it all to L.A. That's L.A. Tressman is what that is. Is that Vegas Hawes nemesis? Yes, At our place, we're really trying to grow the man because we think growing the man helps our football team. It's the arch nemesis of Vegas Hawes, L.A. Tressman. <laughs> Vegas Haw, way better. Well, obviously. we. Yeah, he's the hero. Right. He's not the supervillain. The supervillain is L.A. Tressman. Don't reach into the toolbox. No, not that concept. Lars Anderson Tressman. Right. L.A. Tressman. In organized. Get it. I'm excited to be here in Tampa. Caitlin Clark is chasing Pistol Pete. And there are some people who don't believe that Caitlin Clark is an He's all time good at basketball. What the hell are we doing? I don't know, but Come they on, should man. stop. Yeah, there's hot takes, and then there's hot takes, and there's just saying stuff to say stuff, and just you might just want to knock it off. And and 
I'm, I don't want to pit the the career of Caitlin Clark against that of Pete Maravich. I think that it's an opportunity for people who don't know how great Pete Maravich was to appreciate some numbers that don't seem to make any sense until you factor in something that isn't often discussed. We'll get into all that next on The Score. It's a great question, and so many of them were so good. In fact, all of them I learned something from that if I mention one of them, I'm going to leave out all of them. And if I try to mention all of them, I'll, I won't remember some, and, and I'll regret that. You're listening to Bernstein and Holmes, middays 10 to 2. Your midday destination for Chicago Sports Talk on 670 The Score. In Odyssey Station. Here comes Clark. How will she go for history? That's three of 3,569 points in four seasons for Caitlin Clark. So she is the all-time leading scorer in NCAA women's basketball history. Now, what's not talked about is that she's not the all-time leading scorer in women's basketball history. Thank you for bringing that up. She's not, because Lynette Woodard at Kansas... Between 77 and 81, scored 3,649. That's before it was NCAA. And there's also Pearl Moore. Pearl Moore scored 4,061 points, not only before it was the NCAA, but she was not a D1 player. She was at Anderson Junior College and Francis Marion University. So there's all these names here that Caitlin Clark may surpass. And then there's the... 3,667 points that Pete Maravich scored. I think she's 75 points away with three more games to play before the conference tournament. Now, first of all, this stuff that Jay Williams is talking about, how about she, she hasn't won a championship, so she's not an well, all-time great. Well, why don't, why don't, hey, we, on, why don't we hear from Jay come Williams on. in that regard? And then we I think she is the Stephen Curry of women's basketball. I think she has changed the dynamics of the way the game is played. I think the way she plays, the pizzazz, is like she's probably the most prolific scorer the game of basketball has ever seen. Unmatched. I am, I am unwilling, and maybe it's more the, the Kobe mentorship around me, to say that she is great yet. I think she is the most prolific scorer the game has ever seen. I hold great or the levels of immortality or the pantheon to when you win championships. I'm just, that's just me. So Diane Taurasi, when you win three consecutive championships, two-time national player of the year, it has, to, it has to culminate with the chip. It has to. I mean, Brianna Stewart, if we're talking about GOAT legends of the game, she's won four chips. Four chips, multiple national players of the year. So I'm not saying that she's not at a high, high, high level, but for it to go to the states of immortality, in my opinion, it has to culminate with your team winning a championship. Wrong, 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 wrong. Wrong, 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 wrong. Just- no. And and remember what I was saying earlier about the bastardization of Mamba mentality? Here's another example of it. It's just wrong. Uh, can I break in a little breaking news here? Sure. Just because I think you'd get a kick out of this. BetQL. Sorry. Breaking news on 670 The Score is presented by BetQL. Smarter bets start with BetQL. Download the BetQL app or visit BetQL.com today. Uh, this is from Michael Scotto of uh, Hoops Hype in USA Today. Ryan Archidiacono is joining the Chicago Bulls G League Windy City affiliate. Which means he'll be on the active roster soon. 
they don't need guards. Welcome sure back. they do. And Welcome then back. why they signed Welcome Ryan back. Archie Diacono. And owner Alp Bitim is now I, a full-time player. I think so. Ryan Archie... Archie. I, I think Ryan Archie Diacono is the last bull to be on the score. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I know that might be true. I'm not kidding. I well, think there, he's, there was um, no, Io no, 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 no. visit oh, okay. to, yeah, to the afternoon out. show. That, that was a thing. But, All right. But, shout out to the DeSumo fam. I, got, I should repost the column that I wrote years ago. Would five Ryan Archie Diaconos beat five Zach Levines in a game? But what about Please like don't. all the? Uh, <laughs> I, can't even say. I was dared to do it by Cody Westerland. He said, "I dare you to write this column." What about all the Alex Carusos though? Aren't there five or six of those that Stacey always says? Don't forget the Javante Greens. Where is Javante Green? I don't think he's playing. We were talking about that on the pod. I I, I think he's he's he hasn't been playing because he had another weird injury. Five so he of went them to out there. he went to Golden State. You think one of them? And I, th- and I thought he was on the Golden State G League team. I don't know. What was they waved him back in October. Oh, I know they're going to be helping off me. Um, I know that I'm not really a proven player in this league, but I know I can shoot it, so I'm just going to shoot it with confidence. All right, go get him. But uh, it's not why you called. So Pete Maravich, I, I do think that. Wait, there- hold on. What? Let's let's. The last thing that we did on the subject we were going to do was talking about Jay Williams. Well, you heard it. It's wrong. It's dumb. It, it is wrong. It's dumb. And, and p- part of the reason that it's wrong is that go look up Diana Taurasi's teammates and Brianna Stewart's teammates. The landscape of college basketball was different when you had the hegemony of Connecticut yes! and Tennessee and maybe Stanford here and there. Yes. But, but, that's but, significant. Yes. Like, that's a significant difference than what Caitlin Clark is doing with a couple of of decent players around her, pretty good players around her, but not a murderer's row of the best college basketball players coming out of high school. When certain teams monopolized, and you knew that only one of three teams was going to win the title every year. I mean, I might be crazy. You can call me crazy. Wasn't one of Diana Taurasi's teammates at Connecticut, Sue Bird? Yeah, she's pretty good. Okay. (laughs) Just say it. Pretty good team. So let me give you, first I'm going to give you the mythology of the Maravich numbers and then give you a a really significant mitigating factor that is rarely presented. Okay? Okay. Maravich scored 3,667 points. He was not allowed to play varsity freshman year. That's crazy. He did this in three years. Him and Lou Alcindor. So Maravich did this in three seasons. Also, there was no three-point line. He averaged 43.8, 44.2, and 44.5 points per game, respectively, in those years. That is a total of 44.2 is his average without a three-point line, and without a shot clock. Damn. So when you think about possessions and pace and opportunities, a team could run the four corners and go up two to nothing and try to win the game that way if they want. And he was putting on a show well, like Caitlin does. Well, they have since gone back to all available film 
and it is a, it's been claimed that every shot has been charted and overlaid with a three-point line. What was his percentage from three? Uh, I don't know the percentage, but his scoring average would have been 57 points per game. Yeah, with, sounds about right. With a three-point line. silly. Now, you say, well, that's, that's silly. And, and he was amazing. However, what people do not bring up, he played at LSU. LSU was in the SEC. And what was the SEC almost the entire time that Maravich was playing there? Segregated. Aha! Indeed. He was, he was, remember we make fun of the grainy 1950s NFL films and the golden age of tackling? He was playing his conference games, most of his games, in a segregated league. So I do think while there, like he was a legitimately great, great player, an absolute all-time great, who, believe it or not, died 36 years ago. Died of a heart attack on the, on the, court at age 40 because he had a heart defect that was undiagnosed and his videos his skills videos the trick shot videos the trick passing videos are still legendary to this day but he racked up a lot of these college numbers these insane college numbers in a segregated league so it's important to note that and also obviously you would say that well the existence of a three-point line, it doesn't mean that those shots, it changes the shape of defenses, it changes where everybody's going, it doesn't mean that those shots that were open twos with no three-point line would necessarily, you, you could argue all these things, but that's a lot of points, man. That's a lot of points in three years. It's fun to, to, to see what Caitlin Clark is doing, too, just like to bring eyes to the table, because you're like, what kind of crazy shot is she going to try? Now, I will say, it does look like the pressure of this is getting to her team. You know, they, they lost last night to a very, very good Indiana team. But you could see, like, some of the choices that were being made. You're like, what's going on here? And this was after, you know, the loss to Nebraska on Super Bowl Sunday. So there's a lot to – but she she makes you stop and watch. And th- that, to me, is greatness. By the way, um, Diana Taurasi's teammates – at UConn, Aja Jones, who went on to have a great pro career and won a gold medal, Tamika Williams. Oh, my God. Swin Cash and Sue Bird. It's <laughs> a dream team. I wonder why that team, like, never lost. Yeah. It's that's, shocking. That's crazy. It's shocking. How that team never lost. How Diana Taurasi was able to win all of these championships. I don't know. Because she's truly great. And also, everywhere she looked to pass the ball, there was greatness. Like, oh, what, look, would you look at that? I'm going to pass to another Hall of Famer. Would you look at that? Oh, there's another one. There's another there's Hall of Famer right over there. A lot of Hall of Famers out here. What's going on Wait here? In this team, they're playing not full of Hall of Famers. Correct. And there's one Hall of Famer on Iowa's team. 
And she's out here getting buckets. No shade to Diana Taurasi. But let's, hey, Jay Will, if we're trying to bring context to things, let's go all the way well, with the context. Do this. If you put Kate, Caitlin Clark on South Carolina right now, how good would they be? They would be unstoppable. Yeah. If you put her on LSU. Well, here's the problem. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, she might be benched or suspended Un- or not allowed to play. Unfortunately, bad my bad. Unfortunately, at LSU, they do have a dream team of players. And for some reason, Kim Mulkey can't quite pull it together. Because, oh, you've got Angel Reese? Well, who's she going to pass to? Anissa Morrow. Oh, and if they're, they're covered, it was Haley Van Lith. Haley Van Lith. Oh, but you're like not letting her shoot because she wears pigtails like you did when you were playing point guard at Louisiana Tech. Wait, what? She. It's pretty clear to me that Kim Mulkey sees herself in Haley Van Lith. So won't let her and, shoot? And I don't see her game. I see a very different player, one that likes playing off the ball and is really good at scoring the ball, not some floor general, some little angry floor general that Kim Mulkey was when she was a player. Still is. Well, yeah. Every time I watch an LSU game, I'm like, you know Haley can shoot it, right? I mean, Kim Mulkey is right there on my list of of, of college basketball asshats who, who make it painful to, to watch. For sure. They're screaming, I, entitled, I think that they'll, they'll pull it together in the next couple of weeks and they'll be dangerous in the tournament. But even watching them through the regular season, it's look clunky AF. Speaking of college basketball, one of our friends was calling a game last night and there was some hijinks afoot. Yeah, we'll share that with you and get you ready for Cubs, White Sox, the battle for it all in the Cactus League. Bet MGM and 670 The Score are honoring Hall of Famer Chris Chelios's career and retirement of his number seven jersey this Sunday. Mully and Haw will be broadcasting live at Kaiser Tiger from 12 to 3 p.m. The show is expected to feature a visit from Chris Chelios and other special guests. Come by and say hello before going to the game. Hello. That is this Sunday, 12 to 3 p.m., Kaiser Tiger, 1415 West Randolph, near the United Center. Bet MGM will also be celebrating by offering a $7 bonus bet to all customers in Illinois. Bet MGM, the king of sportsbooks. Bernstein and Holmes at the score. Bernstein and Holmes, middays 10 to 2 on 670 The Score and 670thescore.com in Odyssey Station. Station, 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 station. The spring training opener for the Cubs is today against the White Sox. Coverage begins in moments right here on 670 to score. For the latest news on the Cubs or Sox, try listening to chapters from our show through the Odyssey app. Each topic we cover is broken out so you can find what matters most to you. To get started, download the Odyssey app, then search for 670 to score and tap on a recent episode of our show. There's going to be baseball in the next 10 minutes here on the score, but before that, our buddy Jason Benetti and his crazy partner Robbie Hummel—they are a really good duo, doing college basketball stuff. The, the subject came up about the Coob last night. Matt Painter, noted Cubs fan, getting ready for spring training while basketball is happening too. 
You said that with such disdain in your voice, but you don't have to. You don't have to do that. Thank you for the update on my career. <laughs> oh, did I? Did I change baseball teams? Right? I think you did. I hadn't noticed. It's lovely this time of year in Lakeland and in West Lafayette. <laughs> I don't think he said it with disdain. I didn't hear disdain. No, Homo was sitting on that. Uh, of Homo course was he was. He's, course, wait, he's waiting for that opportunity. Of course he was. That's why he's a good partner. He's giving him the business <laughs> down there. But but it, it, it is kind of a thing. It's not mandated by the White Sox, but, you know, the uh, Cubs. You're, if you're with them, you're not with us. We still get texts like that. Some guy even today is like, you only matter to White Sox because you have the Cubs. You guys are WCUB. Whatever, man. Okay. It never ends. It, yeah, that's that's a guy who's like fiercely supporting. He hadn't been to a game in 20 years. Thank you to Ray Diaz, Adam Studzinski, Brandon Fryer, Connor O'Donnell, Kevin Lapka for all the things that they do. Thanks for another terrific week of shows. Yeah, good stuff. We will have a lot of fun next week. We are really excited about Cubs preseason and Cubs season getting underway, which is cool. It's cool. And when you're, you know, watch Christopher Morrell. That, that's going to be. If, if routine plays, watch him record out, see if he can raise that throwing slot a little bit that, that arm slot can't be that sidearm weird flippy thing to get you ready for cubs baseball why don't we share an interview that we did with pat and ron have a great weekend enjoy cubs baseball on the score thank you for the update on my career i think craig is just a very smart baseball man he really is he he spent 16 years in the big leagues Rarely, Ron, was he an everyday player. Maybe briefly with Milwaukee, he played every day. But primarily, he was a backup player, a utility man, great defensive player, good base runner. He could drop down bunts. He could hit behind the runner. Uh, he's just He was fundamentally a very solid player. And I think he's a smart baseball man. And I think we saw that on the other side, Ron, when Milwaukee and the Cubs would play these last seven or eight years with Council managing one side and Joe Madden, and then later David Ross on the other. I said many times, when you see these two teams play, you're watching two of the best managers in baseball with counsel on one side and either Madden or David Ross on the other. And so we have, we have great respect for Craig as a, an opponent, and it'll, yep. be, it'll be interesting to have him on our side. Yeah, it will be. I've known counts for a really long time since he was at Notre Dame. Um, and we've been friends, you know, through the years for a long period of time. He's got a very different team with Chicago than he had in Milwaukee. He was a, a run prevention. He, I, I love the way he explained this one time. I listened to him talk, and he was a run prevention manager, right, in Milwaukee because you knew the – with his pitching staff day after day after day with three number one starters in the rotation and, and maybe the best one-two punch in the back of the bullpen, if he kept the score down from three runs down, there's a good chance one of his guys is going to run one in the seats and you win three to two, you win four to three, you win two to one. I don't know if the Cubs are that team. So what we're going to see is him evolve into doing something else maybe that is going to be the 
way he looks at our ball club. Very good defense. I don't think we have the same pitching that Milwaukee did back then. Um, so we'll just have to see. But he will leverage the game in the fourth or fifth inning, Dan, to your point, if he feels like that is a situation where the game is on the line. Speaking of pitching and Milwaukee, one kind of under-the-radar move took place within the last 10 days. Corbin Burns, who has been an ace for the Brewers for several years, was traded to Baltimore for a couple of prospects. So he is in the final year of his deal before becoming a free agent. Milwaukee thought, let's go ahead and try to get something now instead of later. I thought that was a pretty significant move. It greatly reduces Milwaukee's strength, and I think, therefore, you know, by just, um, I guess, logic, it gives other teams a better chance to win the division. Agree. He's one of the best pitchers in our game right now. He really is. Pat, I just got a text message from a friend of mine who's a White Sox fan, like a crazy White Sox fan. And this person said, hearing Pat on the radio is so comforting. What's been your relationship with baseball? Like now you end up in Cooperstown. I'd, I'd love to know how it's evolved, like your feeling about the game from an insider's point of view now that you've done this for as long as you've done it. Well, uh, it's it's a lifelong love affair for me with baseball. Playing as a kid, listening to games in the Bay Area with Russ Hodges and Lon Simmons, the voices of the Giants. And when you're a young kid, you think the guys that you listen to, these are the greatest announcers ever. Well, it turns out that Russ and Lon both made it to the Hall of Fame. They were two of the greatest announcers ever. And I think I was taking a course in Baseball 101 from the time I was eight years old, listening to those guys every day. And the teams that they had were so compelling and so exciting to watch. Willie Mays, Willie McCovey, Orlando Cepeda, Juan Marichal, Gaylord Perry. These guys were all on the team, five Hall of Famers. The Giants had a pennant in 1962, but they were a contender every single year, played an exciting brand of ball, and they had great announcers. So that's where I started loving the game. And then, Ron, like you, I was lucky enough to be on some championship Little League teams and Pony League teams, and that makes you love the game even more. And I just love being part of a good team And now, as a broadcaster, I'm part of a very good team also with Ron Coomer and Zach Zaidman, and we're on the score, and it just feels good to be part of a team now that I'm a a senior citizen. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. 
We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.